I'm Commander Shepard, and Normandy FM is my favorite show on the Citadel. Normandy FM. 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 land has come we are we are here we're back we're back after ending the trilogy you thought that the last episode was the end of normandy fm but oh no it was just the beginning it it was just the beginning of a terrible terrible journey that i i am on now because of you you. the patrons at home Uh, no, I'm really interested for the season. So for those who are tuning in right now, maybe you're jumping in because, you know, you've either listened to the other episodes already, you're jumping in now, or you just want to jump in with us on a new game. This is Normandy FM. I am Eric Van Allen, joined by my co-host, Kenneth Shepard. What up? Uh, we are a Mass Effect retrospective podcast, and we have finished the Mass Effect trilogy. In 38 episodes, we got through all of Shepard's story. And uh, thanks to the lovely patrons on our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash normdfm, they uh, supported us enough that we reached the tier to cover Mass Effect Andromeda, which is, I mean, let's, so, you know, I'm going to cut out all the opinions right now and just, like, lay it, like, flat Andromeda is a spin-off game in the Mass Effect universe that largely has very little to do with the Mass Effect trilogy outside of extremely basic things like races and some technology and things like that. For the most part, this is a game that is almost, like, it feels almost wholly removed from the Mass Effect trilogy in or is many, it? many ways. I, I'm just saying. I'm just saying that this is... Let's also preface this with, Ken, you have played all the way through Mass Effect Andromeda. Mm-hmm. You've played this video game. Have you played it more than once? Uh, this playthrough for the show is my fifth time playing through it. Okay. This is my first time actually like going to go all the way through it, because I gave it the old college try back so- when it first came out, and as far as Ken and I can discern, I was anywhere between like a third to halfway through the game when i stopped playing right so and yeah yeah i just want like let's because we did this with when we did the first mass effect like we had this this conversation and like that was there's a 10 year gap between mass effect one and mass effect andromeda i think we need to kind of put some context on where you and i were in our lives when mass effect andromeda was even like announced because when it was announced, yeah, because like this is an important. I, I think this is important just to like contextualize where we both were coming into this game. Because oh, I'm struggling. 
Oh, I remember. Don't I worry. I, perfect memory. Fine. So, <laughs> Mass Effect Andromeda was hinted at in, like, teaser trailers for a little bit before it was finally unveiled at E3. Or what? I can't remember if it was EA Play or not What at that point. But, like, 2005. I don't 2000, think it was EA Play yet. 2015. And I remember, because you and I, we were both in the room as that was happening, because we were working together. We were finally, like, we actually had oh, some professional standing. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, this is that E3. No, I don't think there... No, there wasn't EA Play that year. There wasn't EA Play. Okay. That was the first year of EA Play. Okay. All right, so... To kind of, like, paint a picture of this, I remember everyone... Or, you know, people that were really paying attention because we were all in the room like, doing, you know, reporting and news writing for that stuff, and everyone was like, yeah, more Mass Effect, and I am over in the corner, like deadpan face like I'm just like I don't like this because like even just like at the beginning it was the the trailer was like very tonally jarring in itself because like it was like set to Johnny Cash and had Alec Ryder like and his ragtag group of people exploring these unknown worlds and it was like supposed to be this sort of uh I don't know it's supposed to like it, it frames it as like this very adventurous thing like a journey throughout, you know, unknown worlds, and for me, I was very conflicted about just even seeing this trailer, like, knowing this game was going to be a thing that existed in the next year or two, because I was, like, very content with the trilogy being it. Like, I didn't I didn't need more Mass Effect, but also, like, to have this trailer that was very tonally jarred, just like, because, you know, the Mass Effect 3 is, like, a major fucking bummer, and the next, the very next thing that Bioware, you know, presents to us in this universe is, like, the complete opposite and just in terms of the way it's presenting itself. So, at that point, I was not down with this game. And that same hesitation stayed with me for a very, very, very long time. And by that, I mean until, like, a week before Mass Effect Andromeda came out. So, hmm. when the game finally was, you know, out in the world and ready to, you know, it was like, a, you know, a week out, it finally started to hit me that was like, there's more, like, more Mass Effect coming, like, I would see, like, you know, screenshots and videos of, like, you know, Solarians and Asari, and I was like, this, this is my world, this is my home, this is, like, it feels like, despite all my hesitance to jump back into that universe and, like, be a new character and, you know, exist in this world in a way that is almost, like, it's almost like being a different person in the same universe because, I mean, like, both literally in terms of how the game is, but, like, it was almost like I was having to personally be somebody else, if that makes sense. It's kind of... Yeah. Like, it, like, it was even to the point where, like, at, at the time I was planning on, like, making my writer a completely, like, the polar opposite of my Shepard just to, like, have that distinction of, like, this is this character that was, like, the in-universe representation of me, and this is this other person, and this other, like, literally this other galaxy. Like, I, I was gonna, like, make, I was gonna play a, a female writer, I was gonna, like, make her a lesbian, and, like, get into, like, a relationship with a woman, and, you know, have all these things that were gonna differentiate the two, but then it kind of, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, like, because we're gonna get to, the, like, you know, not to skip ahead, I got to where I realized that writer could, instead of being this person that was completely different than Shepard, could be, like, an example of how I, as a person, have changed in the time since. Because it's mm -hmm. been, like, there were, like, five years between Mass Effect 2, 3 and Andromeda. 
So I was like, there's room for somebody that would be still me, but probably very different. Hmm. So that's that's that was my mindset going into Mass Effect Andromeda. So interesting. I know that you have like a much more personal attachment to like the avatars that you play in game. Yeah. Whereas like I feel like over the years, you know, when I first started playing games like these, I tended to play more self insert and and feeling like the avatar was like a representation of myself. Versus now, I very much go in the opposite direction. I see it as an opportunity to create a character that. I can almost like role play as and kind of explore the world through lenses mm-hmm. that I don't get to as as a person. So, um and and what I enjoy is that I feel like the writing has often matured to grow with that whereas mm-hmm. previously, you know, the the result of character creation and stuff at the beginning with with RPGs was that you had a lot of very cookie cutter answers that could mm-hmm. kind of cover all the bases. Whereas now there's a lot more room for expression, especially like like even if you're just working with what is a blank slate and you're kind of having to thrust a lot of your own characterization onto them, which again we'll we'll talk about like very quickly here, but um you still have a lot of room for expression and kind of playing the character that you want to play versus playing a like boilerplate character that's just supposed to be this kind of self insert that you can kind of feel like you're in it even though you're really just playing the same experience everybody else's. Right. So and it's it's like a it's always a push and pull with that. And so at least for me, like I now that we've talked about it, I do remember when that game got announced, I felt very excited because for me it was this idea like, yeah, I love Mass Effect. I love more Mass Effect. Uh I remember initially, I don't think they initially said um when this game takes place but i remember having the kind of feeling that i wanted to see what a world looked like without the reapers in it you know get this idea Mm. of okay they finally you know they're not going to get quelled by the cycle anymore they're going to be able to expand out into other universes finally and and start to see that maybe this dark space stuff is not as wild as you think it may be maybe there's other races out there what if there are other reaper cycles out there what if you know what 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 like we've only seen the the milky way galaxy at this point we've only seen you know like the the small piece of this universe that could get so much larger and from that perspective i was excited and then as more about this game started to come out you know, I was kind of trying to take it with a grain of salt and be like, okay, you know, previews are always rough and they're taking a different, you know, angle with things. And then I, I guess just to like start in, you know, right with where we got to it, like I bounced off this game pretty hard. Uh, and granted, like the, probably the week leading up to release was probably the fastest that my excitement for a game has ever mm. dipped because as even previews, and I was thinking about this because I was recently watching a YouTube video from someone who used to be uh, a games person who now is still like a games person, but they kind of work in a different capacity in the industry. I'm, I'm not naming them to like, you know, don't want to shout them out or anything like that, but they mentioned that they had, you know, they'd never changed a review score or anything like that, but the one time they did remember was that they came out of a preview from Mass Effect Andromeda and they came out going like, oh my god that game sucks and Hmm. i have to be the one who has to now go tell people like what i thought of that game and it was it was in the lens of you know like the way that people respond to criticism and the the way they feel about 
any level of criticism in, in yeah. Kane's journalism at all. Not that, not that we've ever had those moments, but never. Uh, they specifically mentioned that they were like, I probably could have made a few sharper jabs at this game that, uh, that would have been more accurate to what public consensus eventually came around to about it. But I held back because I was worried about the response. And so I still gave it a pretty negative preview, but I held back some of my like sharpest jabs. Mm -hmm. Um, but once the reviews started coming out, I mean, it was, you know, forks and knives out. Like they just started tearing into this game and I was like, holy crap, you know? And as I started to see more of it, I mean, there were the very infamous, you know, gifts and things like that Mm -hmm. of animations glitching out and just all sorts of bad things happening. And I think this is a good launching point to start talking a little bit about the game itself, because I wanted to talk a little bit about the game itself and how it differs from Mass Effect before we like got into any actual story stuff. Um, mm. And this is actually like the prime reason why I bounced off of it and why I still, even now while playing it, I'm like, if I wasn't playing this for a podcast, I don't know if, I, if I'd keep playing it. Uh, it's important to note that Mass Effect, especially like Mass Effect 3, was made using the Unreal Engine. Mm. Uh, and, you know, like that's that's something that they were kind of used to using. Whereas Andromeda was made using Frostbite. And Frostbite is, you know, EA's engine, it's their beloved baby. And it also has some very known problems whenever you try and make it do certain types of games that it does not seem like it was designed to do but like rpgs yeah and 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 that's going beyond even just like it's not even a mechanical thing it's there's something about like the look of this game that i felt like i was trying to describe it to you i just said like how can this game look better and worse than mass effect 3 at the same time like in the exact same shot you will see things that look incredibly gorgeous and then you like come around to a face and the light hits it and you're just like huh huh (laughs) like it's it's incredible it's it is a weird thing because like there are moments where the game look i mean like even you know it's been about two and a half years at this point like the game still you know in certain areas like looks great like it and if you get to like certain well, like, I don't even know how to describe it, like, levels of cutscenes where, like, even the characters kind of still, like, some of them still look great. Like, I mean, there's human faces that can look weird, but, like, the Turians, the Angara, the Solarians, like, they, like, it's, they look better than they ever have. But it's, like, you know, y- you can use it to make environments look great, but, like, when it gets to, like, the details of people and making that look, you know, as natural as everything that surrounds mm-hmm. them... Especially on a scale of a game like this, where like you've got a you've got like you know dozens you're, or more of characters, lot, yeah. Like you've got like you know like you go to like the Nexus or like one of the uh, the outposts on one of the the planets, and, like you're dealing with like a, like twenty or so characters at once so that you've got to make look distinct enough that you know that it doesn't look like you're just kind of same face and everything, but also you got to animate them to the point where. There is, like, a, some sort of levels of distinction between them there. It's just a lot to ask, like, a, and it's not something that we... To, to kind of, like, give all my, my counter-arguments on, like, the animations, or, like, the the criticism of the animations, this isn't something that we typically ask of things like Elder Scrolls or Fallout. Like, and, like, when it comes to things like Bethesda, like, you know, the glitches and the, like, you know, very stilted animations, 
are they're viewed as more of like a a known feature, so they don't like get the same. It's like quirky yeah. with them, and yeah. so like there's a part there's a part of me that's like, why is that okay that Bethesda can kind of like have these games that don't always look the best? You know, like like on a smaller scale, like characters, yeah. Where Andromeda gets like gifts and memed out of like, I mean, like it. I mean, it might be a very simplistic way of saying it, but like things like that are the reason this game went down the way it did because like if you like it makes me wonder like if there had been a point like if Dragon Age 2 had come out around like you know the same time where you know one bad shot or animation can be shared thousands of times on Twitter would we have Dragon Age Inquisition like would we have like the point where like the the series like uh, got back on track hold, I don't know if that holds water though because I mean like even around Dragon Age 2 I remember there's a lot of talk about like how you know oh it's the same three levels over and over again and the the combat's so boring and stuff like like there was there's a lot of stuff that was sh- like i remember seeing pictures like this was at the i felt like the nascent stages of what has now become like the the massive entity of games subreddits is you would see people sharing on like our gaming jokes about walking into the same cave over and over again in dragon age 2 and things yeah, like that well, even like the personally like my my initial experience with Dragon Age 2, the main thing that I remember ever happening that was, like, the most... At least, like, from a technical standpoint, like, the thing that always stuck out to me about... That was off about Dragon Age 2 was, like, in some cutscenes, like, characters' models would, like, flicker through, like, in the middle of cutscenes. And so it's just, like, things that, like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, yeah, yeah like, repetitive dungeons were something that kind of, like, stayed with Dragon Age 2 over the long run. But, like... If like again, like if you could share a GIF of that kind of stuff on Twitter and it get and it spread like wildfire, like the way that Mass Effect Andromeda did, would things like that have caught on more? Like, would that have been something that could have been like, you know, the major thing that people point to? Like, this game sucks because of this. Because like honestly, like, like I said, like about like comparing to things like Elder Scrolls and even other Bioware games like Inquisition as well. I don't really feel like a lot of the animation stuff is that different from a lot of the games that Bioware has put out over the years. It I mean, has like, also been patched over time. Like, it has, I, yeah. I was, I was looking up to check because I felt like I'd seen some stuff and Andromeda definitely got, like, patched over time. It, it hasn't gotten... It hasn't received ongoing support. You know, that team has generally moved on, but uh, it did receive, like, help for a while. Right. So, yeah, I, I just... That, like, and th- it's gonna be just, like, a recurring thing as this, we go through the season. Like, I feel like this game got annihilated by memes in this well like like the game certainly has problems which we will go over but like i feel like if you think the mass effect andromeda is a bad video game you probably need to play more video games <laughs> that was a bad, that's a bold statement right there um i i think the other thing you have to consider here and, and i do agree with you to some extent that like fallout and Sky, skyrim especially does not get I mean, it gets kind of joked about, but it is seen as like a quirk or like a humor right. thing, it's, and it's, it's, it hasn't it's never... affected Skyrim's rep that much right. as far and it as being like it's, this amazing like it, game. And it doesn't even affect like review scores at all, really. Like, like Skyrim and Fallout are That's both like I think where like I'd 90... start to disagree with you. No, because... but like if you like you go look at their Metacritic's, it's like they're still in like the high eighties, nineties. Yes. Skyrim, yes. Uh, Fallout seventy six, I can't really. Four. Fallout 4 specifically was I th- that was the point where I think people started to th- to realize like hey you know for a while it was 
we love so much of what these games do that we're willing to overlook this eighty-eight other stuff. Eighty-eight. Eighty-eight. Wow. Okay then. Um, it it was a lot of people who were willing to overlook things because these games were doing something, and I think Fallout Four, like even if the Metacritic does not reflect it, I think overall consensus has been that Fallout in general has kind of fallen by the wayside. You could say the same for Elder Scrolls too. Skyrim has been around forever, and there's a reason. You know that game still does hold up and do what it does the same as it did back when it came out. And there's a reason why it took them so long to get to another Elder Scrolls is because it's like, why do you think it's taking them so long to make a Half-Life 2 or, or Half-Life 3, I mean, um, after Half-Life 2? Uh, it's this game that had such a cultural impact that now you don't, like, how do you follow it up? How do you make the next one and not massively disappoint everyone? And I think... Mass Effect suffered under some of those same expectations because you are trying to follow up the Mass Effect series no matter how people felt about Mass Effect 3. In some ways, how they felt about Mass Effect 3 definitely impacted what they wanted from Andromeda because they felt like, you know, there there was some sentiment that I saw that was like, Andromeda is going to be a make good. It's going to be this, okay, you know, we're putting the ending behind us and we're off to a new frontier and everything's great out here now and rosy skies ahead and... Uh, I think the other thing you have to kind of contextualize that with, though, is how do you engage with those different games? Like, Skyrim is not the same sort of single-player experience that Mass Effect is, because Skyrim does have, like, as quests, and you play it by yourself, and you're you're doing all these things, but that's very much a game that's more about the experience of playing it than than the structured narrative. There isn't as much of a focus on the structured narrative, because, I mean, people will freely admit that most of the structured narrative in that game is bad. Uh, you know, it's it's varying levels of good to bad, and there's definitely high points, for the most part, you're playing Skyrim because you want to dick around in the skybox, the sandbox that just has all this dumb stuff that could happen at any given time. Is this fantasy world where you can do any sort of stuff? Mass Effect is very much more contained and structured, and so when you have that sort of thing, there's more focus on when things go wrong, especially when you have more time to like pay attention to them and you're expecting them to go right because that's the way that the story and the narrative is supposed to go. Like That's how I see it, is when you have people glitching out during conversations, you know, in Skyrim, that's a funny joke because that game is just kind of like dick around sandbox time, but Mass Effect is very much like, I'm going to sit down and engage with this narrative and really get invested in these characters so it sticks out a lot more. Uh, that's that's how I personally feel about it, um, and that's just kind of like the way that I've seen people respond to these games and stuff. But I do also agree that like Andromeda got a bad rap, even if I also think some of it was very much deserved. It, it's It's a very... It's a tough game to talk about because, like, as I said, you know, I'm not really thrilled about playing it if I'm being on, you know, I gotta be honest for the podcast. Uh, Y'all don't want me to be on here if I'm not gonna be honest. Like, uh, it's, for all the things that I love that it does, I find other things that I'm just like, why would you ever do this? And so I think, if anything, I'm more interested to look at this game to see, you know, how did this reflect where Bioware was at the time Mm -hmm. when they made it? And how has this affected Bioware since? And in that lens, it's a very interesting game to play for me. But in the sense of, like, 
if I had my scruples and I was just sitting down on a Friday night to play whatever I want, drama is not on my list. So, uh, with that note, let's actually talk about Andromeda because I think the first <laughs> thing we should like talk about is the character creation because it mm. starts you out immediately. And this was kind of like this is kind of weird for me because I realized I hadn't had a character creator since Mass Effect One. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know, while you can kind of you can kind of fine tune your shepherd if you want between playthroughs, I never really did. I think yeah. I might have changed her hair once because they literally were like, "Hey, this old hairstyle from Mass Effect One, we like upgraded it in Mass Effect right. Three, so now it like looks better, but it's basically the same hairstyle. Otherwise, you know, basically the same character throughout all yeah. three. Whereas here, as you mentioned before, this is a brand new character. This is a brand new writer." We are writer now. We're <laughs> they still came up with a really good dumb space name, writer <laughs> with a Y. Uh, and I did like immediately get frustrated with some of the stuff in this character creator because there were a lot more options, and I really appreciated that. I felt like I had way more control over like stuff that was on my character, and it kind of mm. made it kind of initially sets you up for me at least that Ryder is not. They, I, I believe it is. So here's here's the other thing I'm not crazy about. You don't really get to select your origin that much, and I like that aspect of Shepard that you kind of get to pick. You know, like how you came up. Whereas with Ryder. I believe you always have the same backstory that you are like this alliance kid that who's obviously their parent is the pathfinder and all that and so that's how you got mm. kind of roped in. Uh so I ended up kind yeah. of headcanoning like who my rider was mm. because I was like, you know, I want to play this I was all paragon last time. I want to play like kind of a renegade. <laughs> I want to be like a jack type character who's all biotic and super powerful but unruly and doesn't want to like adhere to stuff and so the idea of andromeda is like they see a way to find a new universe where they can get a free out and they can basically you know they don't have to be a part of the military anymore they can kind of live their own life do whatever the hell they want and just dick around a new universe uh Mm. but i felt like some of the character creator options did give you that sense that this is not like shepherd this is not this uptight soldier who is going you know you don't have that established military background. You you can design like, oh, they've got scars. You can kind of like headcanon that a little bit, like how they get the scar. And they you can have like weird neck tattoos. Like I have a really cool digital neck tattoo that's on yeah. the side of my writer's neck that's like really awesome. And you know, like dye your hair weird colors and, and yeah. do like eye makeup for a female writer and all that. That was really cool. Um, I think those carry over to, like I think, I'm not entirely positive on this, don't quote me. I think a lot of the options are they they go either way, whichever uh, version of rider you pick. Uh, male. I don't female. think I was able. To, I don't think I was able to pick any facial hair, but That's, I think that was the only okay. thing that I could. Not that might find. that might be because like I think I'm pretty sure male rider can have makeup, long hair, and like you know it's established that this character is not a soldier in the same way the shepherd was. So like that they're less like there's less protocol to go by in terms of how you will make your character look, mm-hmm. which is nice. Nice. Um, I so I don't. It's, it's a common thing that I hear over the years, like, Bioware character creators are something that people say are not good. Uh, meanwhile, my characters are fucking hot. Like, I don't know what you guys are doing. Like, I don't know if you're just, like, everyone else is just scrolling through them real fast and, like, mm. not really looking. No, like, my, my, my characters are real good looking. Here's my issue with, and, and I mean, this is kind of a larger engine issue as a whole, but 
the lighting they use in the character creator a is like you know there are very different kinds of lighting that are used throughout this game and i quickly noticed while playing even like the early missions that a character is going to look one way in low light or medium light and look very different in high light because it just kind of blows everything out and so like i picked kind of a rougher complexion because i wanted them to have like you know they look a little battle worn and stuff like that Mm. uh so in medium and low light my character looks great you know she looks tough and gritty and then the second highlight shows up it's like she aged 50 years it's bizarre Mm. Um, and there, there are other different things. Like I, I wasn't crazy about the fact that there weren't a lot of like zoom or rotate options, uh, right. because some of the stuff you're trying to figure out is very minute. And I was kind of having to like peer at the TV to see like minute differences in chin depth and stuff like that. I like really went into it. You, normally I just kind of like find a preset that I mostly like, and then maybe like tweak a few things. But this one, mm. I like really crafted a rider, you know, I, I still picked a preset, uh, but I really like went through every single one of them and made sure I was like doing the thing where I went all the way to the left and then all the way to the right and then kind of like found the in between that I wanted, which yeah. is how I do all my character sliders. Yeah. Uh, and I it made me feel like I have a lot more ownership over who this character is and how I define mm. them. But at the same time, like I I just wish there was a better signal of what your character is going to look like in different situations in those character creators. Cause like now that I'm thinking about it, like Inquisition had like a very, uh, it like, it wasn't that it, there was no lighting, but like the lighting was like fire. So like there was like shadows and stuff over your character's face as you're making it too. So like, yeah, mm-hmm. you can kind of like set yourself up for some surprises there too. Oh yeah. hundred um, percent. So I don't really, I'm trying to remember like what was probably the best one of the games that we've played. Probably mm-hmm. Mass Effect. I think Mass Effect One was pretty good. I, I, I have good memories of Mass Effect One. I think I think on that one, like not necessarily the actual character creator itself, but like the actual like they it's like things in the engine like they couldn't sculpt like details of people's faces in the same way they oh, could by like two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like my shepherd looks mostly the same throughout the trilogy, but like there's like major differences in the way that the engine portrays like certain features. Mm-hmm. some definitions are a little bit more yeah. stark later on right. and stuff like that yeah no i had that same thing the first time i played mass effect uh my character looked super normal in mass effect one and looked like they had no eyebrows in mass effect two or three <laughs> yeah that's when you got to make some tweaks i guess yeah um, so the interesting thing though that i'm going to point out is so you're you're kind of like uh role playing your writer like uh, to clarify like we, i'm playing male writer eric's going to be playing female um and you're role-playing her as more of, like, if it were ever measured in such a way, like, more renegade, per se? Yeah, so are we going to kind of talk about how that has changed in this game? Yeah, we can talk about that in a little bit, because, like, well, okay. I was going to say, like, me, like, my writer in the event that he was ever measured is, like, a very startling paragon person. And that, okay. again, that just comes from, from me being, like, a lot older and, like, wanting this character to be a representation of who I am now as opposed to who I was when I was, like, you know, a late teens or young adult, um, like, my writer's very much about, like, the preservation of life and just, like, sort of... Because, like, you know, we're we're coming to, like, a new galaxy here with, like, 100,000 people total. And it's, like, you know, based on things that happen later, like, when writer gets, like, a lot of responsibility to these people, it's, like, I want... My, my, my mindset when I'm going into decisions and just, like, the way that I talk to people is I want everyone here to feel like us coming here was worth it. And... Mm that 
you know, if I can salvage, like, you know, the very disastrous thing that is the Andromeda Initiative, that's what I want to do. And that's why I, you know, again, that it was ever measured that way, I would be very Paragon. But they do get rid of the Paragon Renegade for a more... It's not so much about, like, you know, good, bad, or, you know, pragmatic versus, you know, very ruthless. It's more about, like, the intention of your character and, like, what they are saying. Yeah, I wrote down from the head or from the heart is what I kind of, yeah. like, got from it. And then the other two, like, I don't know what the swirly options are. I feel like it kind of skimmed over that. It's uh, kind of like, it's like logical emotional, I think, was the way they did it. And, like, you know, that does sound similar in premise, like, at least in name, but it's more about, like, I think I think those specifically get used, like, depending on what your decision is, whether it's, like, you, you making a decision or you just, like, having a conversation. I do like that a lot of the a lot of the dialogue in this game just feels a lot clearer with what you're doing because like while still retaining that kind of like free-flowing dialogue because the one nice thing about Mass Effect 1 through 3 is that you kind of like it's the dialogue is very formulaic you're going to understand when it presents you a wheel like oh, like, the middle option is neutral, and the top option is probably closer to Paragon, and the bottom option is probably closer to Renegade. Anything on the left side of the wheel is extra. Mm -hmm. Uh, If it says, like, other, that'll kind of take me off into another menu, and those will all be additional as well. There might be some things in there, but anything that will advance the plot will be clearly labeled on that, like, initial dialogue wheel, and then if there are Paragon and Renegade options, it'll list those, and they'll be colored according to which option they are. Like, it's very clean, but I think we even talked about, I mean, we talked about it throughout the trilogy, that at times it felt restrictive, and also, like, it wasn't always conveying the kind of character you wanted to be. So, like, my rider, the idea I had for them was just to kind of be, like, this messy, like, almost, like, college dropout type of character mm-hmm. you know they have super biotics yeah. but they don't want super biotics they don't want to be like this perfect uh soldier child they just want to like live their life right and so when they go off to andromeda you know they see this land set out before them okay cool i can go do whatever i want you know like screw you everybody and then mm-hmm. as events happen in this episode they kind of have to start coping with the idea that there is responsibility and they have responsibility right. not just for their own lives but for everybody else's and, and those around them so i like that these options kind of give me the ability to kind of gradually shift between yep. thinking like emotionally and logically uh just picking decisions that feel very much more in character and let me switch tone mm. a lot more in new in more nuanced ways than paragon and renegade ever let me right. do yeah because like i like slightly different uh, but kind of similar it's like my writer i kind of imagine it to be not necessarily like the the college dropout but like the person that is like a little bit less uh you know less responsible like less caring about everything like you know very carefree kind of person and then like again like as things happen like gradually over the course of the game becoming more responsible understanding that mm-hmm. like there are things like the, this is bigger than him and that that it goes into both like the decisions they make in terms of like you know the life or death situations that happen but also just like the relationships that he establishes throughout the game as well it's interesting because i really do feel like it's it there's just so much more room for expression Mm -hmm. and like enjoying like just 
engaging with the character that you are. Uh, so I don't really miss Paragon Renegade that much. Right. Oh, and, yeah. And so far, like, I will say, so there haven't even been those types of interrupts. There's just been kind of a general interrupt system, which also yeah. is nice because then you're not kind of doing it no. based on points or what how it's going to affect right. your morality. Exactly. You're just kind of doing it whether you want to do it. Right. And that feels like a good overall change for mm-hmm. the series, especially for Ryder as a character. Um, but we can kind of jump into now, like, what the setup of the game is. I can't believe, you know, it's taken us this long to get here, but this is a... You know, A, this is the first episode. There's a lot of table setting we got to do. Mm-hmm. And B, uh, there's kind of a lot to discuss just about, like, how radically different, like, framing-wise this is from Mass right. Effect. Because different from Mass Effect 1, where we kind of came in and we were Shepard, you know, just kind of seeing everything in the universe for the first time, we have preconceived notions of what things are in this universe. And so taking them to the Andromeda galaxy, I thought that Bioware had some interesting and took advantage of some interesting opportunities to play with our expectations a little bit and kind of play mm-hmm. with those pre-established norms. And that kind of becomes a longstanding theme uh, throughout what I've played so far. But uh, the whole setup is that we are a colony ship that is one of five that was sent off. Um and yeah, I've, that 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 checks out. Like, I there's one that's like a year. I think it, I'm I'm like very sure it's five. But I always forget the year it is that they leave. Well, there I, there are four ships, and then there's one hub. So I guess that's technically true. But like, it is four arcs that are comprised of different species, like the human arc, the Turian, the Salarian, the Asari, uh-huh. and then there's supposed to be another one on the way. That uh, there's is, a Quarian arc that was supposed to be on the way. But I think they had issues because they were also going mm. to transport, like, Hanar and yeah. Drell and others. And they yeah, and were having trouble, like, getting Elcor. that to... Yeah, they were, like, kind of the, the melting pot arc. Yeah. And they were having trouble, like, finding a way to cryogenically, like, take care of all those different species as they make the giant journey. Because the other thing we have to bear in mind here is that while this story technically starts before the beginning of Mass Effect 1... Mass uh, 2. Mass Effect 2. Oh, it takes place Mass between 2. 1 and 2? Mm-hmm. Okay. Wait, I, I, I believe some... the... I believe oh, the actual... Oh, so yeah, like... I, always, I always gauge it based off of um, thinking of the Liara stuff that comes up, and so I always think that that's before she's met Shepard. Yeah. I, I think it's... Because, like, I think there's even a point in, like, one of the novels that says something about, like, Shepard being dead, and, like, like as they're preparing for to, like, leave for the Andromeda Galaxy, because I think it's supposed to happen... In the time the shepherd, the two years that shepherd is dead, in Mass Effect Two. Really? Okay. So I'm just yeah. going to straight up ask you this question then, because okay. it's something that I've been wondering. Okay. Uh, is there any mention of the Reapers in this game? Hmm. I don't know. Maybe there is. Maybe there's not. No. Well, we'll okay. Let me see. let me better contextualize this. Do characters who have come to the Andromeda Galaxy mention the Reapers as like a thing that was happening? back in the galaxy that they just left like are they ever like hey man remember how sovereign attacks citadel that was messed up no okay that's what i was confused about i know that there will probably be some sort of lord thing that ends up tying shit in i'm not that dumb but uh 
I, I I was kind of confused because I was like, okay, when you're trying to gauge how much knowledge these characters have of what was happening in the Milky Way galaxy before they left for the Andromeda galaxy, uh, you know, obviously there would be a very different tone if they were leaving after a Reaper had just been discovered. And granted, you know, in Mass Effect 2, they kind of set up this idea that uh, it was like it was a rogue Reaper and it wasn't like the Reaper invasion. It was just a thing. You know, Saren found a Reaper. Like a guest ship, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They were like, oh, it's like a super guest ship. Uh, it's, it's not a real Reaper. Um, so, you know, maybe that's a thing. But I was interested to know if they ever actually do talk about, uh, you know, what was going on back there because you would figure that would be a topic of discussion but okay that's interesting but so the basically they leave they have very little knowledge of what was going on back in the mass effect universe and really like mass effect universe the milky way galaxy but there's really very little mention of the things that were happening there outside of a few like callbacks to specific characters and things like that it is very much centered on the Andromeda Galaxy, the Andromeda Initiative, and they make, uh, I mean, it's like several hundred years that it takes them to get to the Andromeda Galaxy from mm. the over Milky Way Galaxy. Mm. Yeah, over 600. Uh, and that's like the first interesting thing to me, because as you like start to have dialogues with people, it becomes very clear that like, you know, they all made this decision knowing that for the most part for most of the species that are on board those ships they're going to outlive multiple generations of their relatives mm-hmm. and things like that mm-hmm. you know they it, it, granted you know like the asari and the krogan might not but otherwise everyone there is going to have generations of their family live mm-hmm. and die while they are in transit and so that's interesting to me as a concept but also just the idea that it's this like colony ship and they're kind of fine i mean we're going to talk a lot about colonialism mm. on this show because it's just something you cannot avoid in talking about this um as much as the game would like to try <laughs> and uh you know we'll be doing our due part in the meantime making sure we're like read up and that we're knowledgeable about this stuff and we're going to have guests on obviously that can also speak to this sort of thing but it does kind of set up very like very early on almost this weird tone for me because i feel like there's this bit of like new horizons new frontiers and then very quickly as we arrive in the andromeda galaxy and see that things are afoot and we're going to have to maybe get involved a little bit more than we expected to in the first place that oh there's like other perspectives to this and are we the aggressors and are we the invaders and granted the game does kind of contort itself in a way to always make sure you're the good guy but Mm -hmm. uh i'm just curious like how much of that you felt especially going back on replay because there was a lot of conversation at the time like discussion around this game that was talking about the sort of setting and the tone it took versus the like versus the actual like actions it was portraying Right. So my, like, not to skip too far ahead, but my reading on a lot of the stuff, like, because the game, like, knows that it's, like, an elephant in the room, like, something that it has to acknowledge in some way. And, like, there will be factions later that kind of, it becomes, like, the forefront of what they're involved in. But, again, like, it always tries to find some ways to make it where you're not, like, again, like, you're not the bad guy. Because, like, you know, oh, like, the people that are accusing you of, like, coming in and, like, trying to, like, take their homes, 
they're also like terrorists that are like you know trying to like seek out and kill like peaceful people like and or they they poison water or like like there are like so many like again like it 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 does its utmost to not make you like if if it can't get you on like the colonialism it'll get you like your what you're doing is for the the good of the people that are still here and we'll get like when we get like you know to like, even the first contact stuff that happens mm-hmm. in this episode like we'll talk about the ways that it tries to like acknowledge but then also like immediately sweep aside these kind of topics so yeah it's just like i i wish that the game could grasp grapple with that more as like as well as mass effect andromeda grapples with a lot of stuff i feel like this is something that it like it it feels like it wants to acknowledge but it also like desperately wants to get away from so it can talk about literally anything else Mm -hmm. but i will say that it does like really set up that sort of idealism at first like you get that kind of like swell of like I'm, I'm exploring i'm i'm going to these new friends like it's it's mm-hmm. very it is like very romantic at the beginning and then quickly right. uh things go awry so uh i mean we should mention there's one character we meet before things go awry that's very interesting uh, natalie dormer is in this game as uh lexi the asari doctor Mm-hmm. And there are like just to like point out, there are a lot of big names in this game. Like it's... there are, there are we're going to stumble across a lot of them, and some of them like I did not even immediately recognize that that was Natalie Dormer, and it took me mm-hmm. like it took me until much later on to be like, oh, the way she inflected that line sounded super familiar, and I looked it up, and I was like, oh hey, Natalie Dormer is in this game. Yeah. Uh, and there are others that are way more apparent. Like the second you hear them, you're like, oh okay, that's who that is. Um. But yeah, there are some pretty big names in this game. That's kind of like the lead-off batter. And I like that it's an Asari, because that just kind of feels very fitting with how Mass Effect as a series views. You know, like, we've talked a few times about how there are points in Mass Effect where, like, you wake up, and then a character is next to you, and the implication is like, oh, this person cares about you. You should maybe talk to them more, because you should romance them. And they did that in Mass Effect 1, where if you played a male Shepard, it would be Ashley. If you played a female Shepard, it would be Caden. Uh, And I thought it was funny in a way that it was in Asari, because it kind of felt like uh, Bioware just kind of putting his hands up and being like, I don't know, hot blue alien chick is here to help you (laughs) out. Played by Natalie Dormer. Everybody can appreciate that, right? (laughs) uh, I don't know. Well... I don't know about that specifically, or at least in this instance, because I mean, like, to jump ahead, they don't. Like, you they can't don't let me Lexi. let me be clear. Like, they don't. Really, they don't sexualize her in a way. I'm not trying to imply that they like trot out eye candy right at the beginning. I just when I think of maybe let me put it this way: who, who the first person, like the first NPC that you meet in a game, has impact in my opinion. Mm. Like it's usually that's a way for the game to establish like this is going to be a very important character uh this right. is going like this is someone who is so crucial that they had to be the first person you met and i think especially in role-playing games that gets used a lot you know you the first villain you meet the first character you meet that's sort of like childhood friends trope you don't they're the ones who end up following you for most of the game and so i think about that whenever games kind of try and put someone front and center and we'll talk about this later on in the episode too but 
usually when there's kind of a one-on-one, especially in a moment in a game where you're supposed to be disoriented or you're coming to or something, some big event has just happened and the game is like, okay, you're going to have a one-on-one with this character now. I always see that as like very important. So I just thought it was interesting they put Lexi there. I was also thinking mm-hmm. about it because I was on a U.S. Gamers RPG podcast recently, uh, Acts of the Blood God, and Cat uh, Bailey on there made a very interesting point about Liara being a canon romance for Shepard because it just kind of feels like this character that's put in front of you. She's very involved with the Reapers. Uh, you have to have a special mission where you go and save her. And then she is the character that is romanceable by either Shepard. You will be able to romance that character. And I thought that was an interesting way of thinking about that, not in terms of like the romance that maybe the game would push you towards, but the romance that feels truest to some sort of canon storytelling of Mass Effect, which I know you can love the idea of a canon Mass Effect. So. Oh, absolutely. I ate that shit up. <laughs> um, but I do, I, I will say that like Lexi, right off the bat, you know, usually when you have celebrity characters, they can kind of be a little groan worthy, especially in this series. We've had a few that are groan worthy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, right off the bat she's way more interesting of a character because a she's not kind of like brought in and be like hey i'm this character i bet you don't know who i am she's very much like voice acting like it's just a normal character doing her own Mm -hmm. thing uh and she has a lot of really like clever dialogues that play out later on uh she kind of Mm -hmm. becomes the chakwas as the game goes on and she, she does a good role in it um and we also get introduced to sam who is our Edie. Uh, that is, I mean, that's basically what's going on. Sam itself is a bit more complex of a character for reasons we will gradually get yeah. into. Let, let's put a pin into Sam for a minute. Yeah, but like the easiest way to just sum it up right now is, hey, it's your ED. It's, it's not even your ED, it's your dad's ED. Because you are here yeah. with your dad and your brother. So you're being brought out of cryosleep. Or your sister. Or your sister, sorry. I'm still thinking in terms of my rider. Uh, getting used to that weird Dragon Age 2 dynamic. Uh, yeah. So we should, as I mean, you... we should we should talk about them real fast because let's talk about Dragon Age too. <laughs> no, 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 well, yeah, sure. But uh, you have a twin in this game. Uh huh. So, well, for, to, to kind of set up their role in this game, at least at this point. So what happens is as everybody's waking up, the Pathfinder team is getting ready to like go to Habitat Seven, which is supposed to be the human home, like not home world, but like the the world in which the humans are supposed to be able to inhabit. It, it, we have been, you know, using these long-range scans from when we were in the Milky Way, and it's based on what we can tell. It is a place that can sustain human life. So we're all waking up, and then the Hyperion somehow crashes into, like, this energy cloud that was not on our scans before, so who knows how that got there. And in the in the process... We like there's a section where we lose gravity. Cora has to come in and like shut it back on, but our sibling's cryopod gets damaged. So Lexi goes over there, and we can go over there too and be like, "What's going on? She, are are they okay?" And she'll say they're fine, but because of the damage, they're gonna have to like wake up more naturally, which means mm-hmm. over the course of the game, as opposed to right now. They, they get put in, like, a medically induced coma, and then they're basically, like, they will, they should wake up. It's just going to, like, take them some time to, like, nat- they have to naturally wake up out of the coma rather than we induce it. Mm-hmm. Right. 
So, to touch, like, to touch on the sibling dynamic, because we're going to have to, like, leave in a minute. Uh, first, did you uh, customize your brother's face? I did not touch a single slider on that, because I spent forever, like, perfecting my rider. And I kind of assumed that there would be some sort of system that would just be like, hey, you know, we'll take the stuff that you picked and we'll kind of, like, normalize it out and throw it on the brother. Uh, turns out that system is just for the dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so my rider is a default-ass rider. Okay. <laughs> my my rider sibling. So I I customized my sister's face, and I kind of tried to make her look like my own sister just for, like, the sentimentality of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I think they, they do it that way, so, like, where you can customize both so you can make them look similar to each other, because they're supposed to be twins, and, um, so, in, like, New Game Pluses, you can just hit the switch and play as your sibling instead. Hmm. So, oh, I didn't I think, know yeah, that. cool. Yeah, so I think they do it just so, like, you can have this sort of through line of family in further playthroughs as well, and, like, but also experience, like, the other side of the game that you can't experience when you're playing the other gender, so. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I did not know that. That's cool. Yeah, so the more you know. Uh, but we do have a character who does take on our traits kind of automatically if you choose to, which is your dad, uh, Alec mm-hmm. Ryder, who is the human Pathfinder, and like the Pathfinders kind of roll. You know, there are a lot of people that are working in the initiative. You know, they're the captains of the ships, and they're the people who are managing the initiative. There are people who manage security and things like that. The Pathfinder is basically kind of the Spectre. Like, their whole job, it's, they have, like, Spectre-like authority, mm-hmm. but their whole job is to basically go to planets and ensure they are habitable for whoever is going to live there. And, you know, that entails right. anything from science and research to a lot of it is reconnaissance and just, you know, mm-hmm. like, scouting places out, traversal, that sort of thing. And also... You know, if if need be, be able to defend and eradicate threats. Uh, so there is like kind of this weird juxtaposition where I, I feel like it's reflected very well early on because you kind of go up to the helm and uh, you're kind of looking down at Habitat Seven, and you know you're like, oh, there's some weird readings down here. There's an energy cloud. We don't know what's going on. Things are things are already bad. When we just got here. Uh, and you can kind of support your dad, or you cannot. Uh, yeah. And, and here's where I kind of rebelled a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was like, nah, nah, screw, screw you, dad. <laughs> so, for me, this was... Because one thing I want to point out is, like, the interesting thing that they do about, like, all these little dialogue things that you do to, like, establish the... Like, what is best, basically the writer family history? Mm-hmm. They get, like, actually, like, noted, like, in the codex, and they inform dialogue options and like just straight up dialogue throughout the game so i at this point i was like i established that my writer and his father were not close because mm-hmm. like that is something like you, like as early as like you know one of the first conversations you have with a character captain dunn who's like the captain of the uh the hyperion the human art um you can just be like me and my dad aren't close or or you can say something along the lines of like uh oh just give him a chance you know he's a grumpy old man so this for me was like again it's like this the early seeds of like a story that I, I'm trying to tell as I play this game is that my writer's relationship with his family is odd it is distant in ways that a lot of characters in, like a lot of characters in this game like a lot of their relationships come back to family like 
uh, characters mm-hmm. that we'll meet later. This character that we'll meet later, Vetra, has this younger sister who she brought to Andromeda. Uh, Liam talks about how it basically broke him to leave his family to come to Andromeda. So like I I liked setting that sort of uh, juxtaposition there with my character being the one that has like, I have a family that's here with him, but he's not necessarily close with them. I I can't remember if there's a support or support conversation. Sorry, I've been playing a lot of Fire Emblem. Um, I can't remember if there's a companion conversation about this or not. But do they ever kind of address the idea that when these people leave, they're like essentially dying to the people who were back in oh, the yeah. Milky Way oh, galaxy? Yeah. Okay, that, that is part of well, at least a few characters that I know for sure. Good because that was something that I was thinking about even when I was talking with Liam and some other characters. Is like, you know, it's not like they're leaving on a long trip or you know they're moving or something like that like this is literally you will never see me again mm-hmm. after this i am going and you are never going to like even if they try to follow them through to andromeda um it'll take them so many years to get there that this person will be dead by the time that they get there so right. like that was a very poignant thing for me because like early on i was like they've got to start touching on that pretty soon. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. But, um, so one of the other things, like the reason why I brought that up is so eventually, you know, we decide we're going to go down to habitat seven. We can't get the Hyperion arc moving. Uh, and, uh, we need to, we need to basically figure out what's going on. Why our communications and stuff are jammed, why things aren't working. What's up with this energy cloud? Like there's all kinds of bad stuff happening. We know that we need to head down to the planet to fix it. Uh, right away it kind of juxtaposes the idea of the recon pathfinder with the invader pathfinder mm-hmm. because you're you like suit up and you put on your helmet and all that and it's like take a gun and yeah. you can kind of have that moment where you're like what do i need a gun and they're like it's better to have it and not need it and we don't know what we're dealing with down there and it's like go pick up a gun <laughs> and that yeah. was kind of the moment where I was like, is this game going to try and deal with it? And honestly, like at the outset, there are some things we'll get to here in a moment that I thought were very well done and like better done than a lot of games I've ever seen do this sort of thing. But it does kind of fall away pretty qu- quickly. Right. Uh, to, to the I think you and I are seeing the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we can talk about that then. But we also get another moment of like character establishment where uh, for me... Uh, I, I don't know if this is true across all of them because I can't remember what I said to Dunn or any of the other characters that maybe would have set this up otherwise, but uh, Korra, who we haven't talked about yet, I realize, is kind of like the, the right-hand woman of mm-hmm. uh, your dad mm-hmm. is, uh, mentions like, touch the good luck touch the good luck yeah. rock on the way out. Like, it's this like, thing that your dad, she even says, like, it's the thing your dad has. And that, like, very early on sets, like, kind of reinforces that, you know, like, oh, Korra is closer to mm-hmm. my dad than I am. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that was my takeaway, too. It's like, it just, like, Ryder doesn't know what this thing is. It's, like, you know, dumb and arbitrary and small as it might seem. It's just, like, that she knows, like, these small little details about, like, these weird things that your dad, like, these hang-ups, these... It's like these are things you theoretically know about your family members, but you don't know it, but Cora does. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's like a very interesting thing because I feel like that already sets up some dynamics between you and Cora as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's an interesting way to like inform her character early. Uh, 
Korra as a character very early on is very interesting because she's slightly defined by being your father's second in command, but also kind of has this immediately antagonistic role with you because you feel like there's mm-hmm. some vying for attention that's happening. You feel like there's right. some, uh, some rivalry no playing off well. each other. Yeah. And, uh, compared to Liam, who is a puppy dog at the beginning, mm. uh, as we're kind of taking the shuttle down and stuff, he's like, oh, look at that. Isn't that cool? Space is neat. God, do love yeah. space. And I'm like... <laughs> Those mountains are floating. Yeah, so look, the the rocks, they're floating. It's so neat. And I'm like, God, you are a puppy. <laughs> so excited to be here. So happy. Yeah. And, and then things quickly go to shit. Um, I, yeah. I forget exactly how it starts. Is it the lightning hits it? The lightning hits the ship and tears it in half? Uh, or or, I think so. or, or if it was a rock? Something something rips off the the doors of the shuttle. Yeah, which and then the ship kind pulls of Ryder like, and Liam out. Yeah, and and later on they they literally say like the ship tore in half and we all went flying out. Um, and you kind of have this cool free fall moment where you're falling through the sky and you know your Ryder is yelling at Sam. You're like turn turn my thrusters on, turn my yeah. thrusters on. It's like it's a cool kind of intro, and then Ryder stands up is looking out over this habitat seven and there's just all these floating rocks and alien fauna and all this stuff mm. where you're just immediately like i'm not in kansas anymore and no. it's it's a very and is, good and, intro yeah and also like your uh your helmet breaks a little bit and mm-hmm. that's when you find out like the atmosphere is even toxic here and like you, yeah. you repair it a little bit so like it's not too bad but it's just like this was supposed to be home but this is uninhabitable mm-hmm. it's a it's a very it, it sets the tone very early on and so now we are landed on habitat seven uh we kind of start moving our way through the game uh here's where i wanted to kind of touch on mobility a little bit because this game is a little bit more mm-hmm. spry than mass effect was mass effects there were definitely times where you could tell like i am a third person shooter character that is trying to move through an rpg universe right and here it almost feels like the opposite where you feel like at least for me i felt like i was a character that was meant to be moving around in one type of game and then was kind of like flipping in and out of the other type of game at will and there's a lot of little stuff that they do that kind of contributes to this the idea that there is no cover button anymore you just kind of automatically take Mm -hmm. cover uh behind really anything like i was finding a lot of weird stuff that i could take cover behind uh yeah and, and that's and if, like if you didn't like it i would say if you didn't like it in tomb raider you're not gonna like it here no and i well i think tomb raiders in various games it was used better or worse um but the thing about i think the interesting comparison there is that tomb raider is more of like a stealth action game i would say that's, you, that's true. Yeah. you can play it as a third person shooter if you really want to but you are very much intended to be mobile to be hiding in bushes you're not doing it i actually found that unless i was in a firefight i was not using cover in that game very often uh, i was yeah. more often sneaking through areas and stuff like that where it felt more like assassin's creed and that felt a little bit more natural for that setting whereas here you are very much in a third person shooter you are taking cover you're moving around but the big difference is that you have these jump jets and if you are Mm -hmm. a biotic i think it's only if you're in the biotic class i might be wrong about that where you have the dash or is that across all that's that's you gotta be and like you gotta be set to the biotic profile 
yeah. of like well, Vanguard. So, uh, let, let's address <laughs> that real quick. So at the beginning of the game, you pick what class you are. Uh at the outset yeah. what class character you are so i picked biotic because right. that fit with my character and, and i'm assuming you picked vanguard mm-hmm. so that kind of sets you up from the outset so i, I liked having all these movement options because it feels really good when like a grenade gets thrown at you and you kind of hit the jump jet buttons and just kind of like get out of yeah. there and get to another piece of cover and stuff that felt really good but there's something about the way that I mentioned in my notes that it feels like The Witcher 3, almost, where when you mm-hmm. stop, you don't really stop. You kind of, like, carry a little bit in a way that feels... You kind of, like, stumble a little. Yeah, and it just... And, like, turning... You don't really turn on a dime, but you don't really, like, take a full motion stride either. It's just this weird in-between where it mm-hmm. just feels like you're supposed to be turning, but it's laggy. And th- there's just an overall feeling of, like, just the slightest of delay between the thing you're doing and the thing that the game is showing you actually doing it that started mm. it started to like get at me a little bit not not to the point that i'm like oh this this is all garbage but i did feel that in some ways i was missing some of the mass effect stuff where it was like when i hit that bounce out of cover button shepherd was getting the fuck up out of cover <laughs> like mm. there was not any lag whereas here I find myself taking cover a lot more often, which is kind of weird. I, I'm on normal, mm. so I feel like... But I I feel like in a lot of this early combat stuff, I'm, like, losing shields really fast, and they're regening really slow. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot more cover-based, so, which is weird to then throw that in with all the mobility stuff. Right. Well, for... I think a lot of that comes down to, like... Because, like, they're not classes in this game. They're profiles, which w- all that really means is that it sets, like, base stats for your character... Mm-hmm. So, because, like, ultimately, I mean, we will get into the spoiler reason why later. Yes. Every ability is every ability is available to Ryder in this game. But depending on what your profile is, that sets the base stats, which is meant to set, you know, your actual playstyle. Because, like, I am set to Vanguard, so, like, my shields are, one, they're constantly recharging because I'm almost always charging. And two, like, they are a little bit more resilient than something like an, an adept or whatever whatever class you might pick. Yeah, so that might um, be it, is I just picked, like, a weaker class and I'm used to, like, weaker health-wise than I'm used to. Right. So, like, it's just, like, a matter of, like, adapting your playstyle from something <laughs> that would... Because, like, you know, you did play Vanguard or the entire trilogy, so, like, there are adjustments to make. Um, as for the movement, like, I get that. Like, I really, I really do. I think in Habitat 7, it is even more jarring because you're not really in, like, the actual pseudo open world exploration of the main game you're on this very you know like there are a couple of like other paths to go on and a lot of some side stuff to do but yeah. the, that that environment is very much built like you know a long hallway like the, like the old Mass of the games were because it is you know the, it's a narrative mission it is not the point where you're going around exploring and doing everything else so like in, in a way the movement does not feel like it is meant for that mission in the same way like you're saying like it feels like it's movement built for two different games which it kind of is it it definitely is and i it's interesting i i don't know it's we'll we'll address more as we get kind of more into like the deeper combat of this game because we are still very much at the outset uh even where i am in my playthrough right now uh so now that we've landed we kind of meet up with liam who luckily is is very nearby uh and liam as we kind of 
get to learn over the the course of this mission is going to be our kind of human companion hang arounds guy that's very much that like bioware trope uh mm. but i will say i agree with your notes that liam is very much more interesting as a character than a lot of these characters tend to be uh mm. just by virtue of like his backstory is a little bit more interesting you know he was a rescue mm. um rescue operator rescue yeah like like extreme hazard rescue person who right. just kind of got sick of it wanted to move on to a new life but then they have a very interesting conflict with the fact that that was like they weren't somebody who was just kind of like getting out to a new life they had a lot of life back where they were mm-hmm. and right. they ended up having a much more interesting backstory than maybe another human companion we're going to pick up here but mm. uh before we get there we've got a few human companions to save because as we soon realize we stumble upon uh one of the crash areas and find uh i believe it's fisher yeah fisher is being accosted by some odd looking fellas who might unknown be aliens like it, that is like we're this scene is really cool for mm-hmm. a number of reasons and one of the like it starts out as early as like their life bars just say unknown like you don't know what they are like it is establishing that like you are in a brand new galaxy of these people that you like it doesn't say like unknown alien or something it just says unknown like you don't even know who this is like I, I like little things like that about the way that they intro this game it's it's a really neat touch and then also the fact that they've just taught you how to holster your gun and things like that mm-hmm. uh so the way I approached this was they're kind of accosting Fisher. Obviously, like you cannot understand what they are saying. You presumably like they can, presumably they cannot understand what you are saying. Uh, and so you kind of end up in this standoff where the game is kind of asking you what you're going to do next, and right. you kind of have a wide range of emotions there. If you don't do anything, your rider will just stand still and yell things you can kind of advance slowly towards them, but mm-hmm. that will make them raise their guns up. Uh, you can draw your weapon without firing. That will not cause them to fire at you. Uh, and eventually they will start to attack Fisher. Uh, mm-hmm. And potentially, I think they can kill him if you wait yeah, too I've, long. I've never waited long enough to find out, but that that sounds legitimate. Like, I, I feel like... Cause like you like you see them they start to like go over they almost are like about will, to like hit him with the butt of the guns. Real quick. Yeah, because I I've, I'm walking forward with my hands raised the entire time. Because again, like I don't want us to like establish us or as like these invaders. I don't want that to be the note that we start our Andromeda lives in. But then as soon as they started attacking Fisher, I was like, okay, can't. I'm sorry, I guess go in biotic charge blazing so it seems it seems like fisher can die mm. that's the sense i'm getting uh yeah fisher can die um yeah. but you have to like unless you're on insanity or something like that you have to go pretty far into waiting for him to actually get killed um, right so we do save him, and we're kind of like, okay, now let's go find everybody else. Uh, and this is where it starts to get... starts to get a little like, weird. Because Fisher says, take a few more of them out while you're at it. I was like, that's not why we're here. Yeah, like... The, the, only, like, the only reason I have shot somebody is because they were attacking you. 
Right. There was there was like literally no recourse. I do like that. I forget who it is, but one of them's like, oh, you know, there's always a second chance at first encounter. You know, we can like we can make this look like it's not what happened and stuff. I'm like, all right, we're already up to Andromeda crimes. Let's do this. Mm. Let's hide the bodies. <laughs> um, oh man. It's getting up to. Of course it's liam the the ex-cop who thinks of that idea <laughs> and there's gonna be something like, and we'll let's put a pin in that and then we'll talk because there's more dialogue about it later where yeah. again it just feels like the game is trying so hard to push it away with all its might mm-hmm. but uh an interesting thing here is that through talking to liam we found out that both writers have different like both writer male or female they do have differing backstories in terms of like where they were uh like what they were doing in the alliance like uh, male writer, like, was guarding a mass relay that was his job in the Alliance, and lady writer is, she was, like, a scientist at, like, protein dick sites as well. Like, later she mentions that she knew of Liara, so, like, just to give you, like, a sense of, like, how, de- both how separate they were, but also, like, they were kind of around the universe that we've already inhabited. Oh, wait, who who is this that's different? The... What's that? What what's the the thing that's different? You mentioned Prothean dig site and stuff. Yeah, I, I missed who uh, the, the character was. Yeah, uh, female writer was like was working in Prothean dig sites. Oh, and okay. Male writer guarded mass relays. See, I I did some of the stuff with the Liari Liara things already, and they mentioned that they were aware of who that was, but yeah. I didn't I didn't catch that that was supposed to be like a reference to the fact that like she had studied prothean dig sites that's interesting yeah huh uh so then we go we're gonna go save kirkland next except this is as i have learned the one character that you can never save uh kirkland will always die in andromeda which is another one of those things that once you kind of see the guts of what's working under the hood feels kind of skeevy because it's like oh so no matter what, a character's always going to die, so no matter what, I'm always going to feel like some level of vindication against these mm-hmm. aliens, so I will feel slightly justified in the actions that I'm taking. And Cause, and there's, a, there's that exchange between yeah. Ryder and Liam where Ryder says, like, would we treat them any differently if they showed up on Earth, armed to the teeth? And Liam says, maybe not. And then Ryder says, peace isn't going to be an option here. Yeah. And... So... That was, like, really the... Cause I mean, and the, it is a recurring theme throughout the game. But that was the point where it, like, really got under my skin. It was like, the game... It's, like, it feels only like the game is acknowledging this because it has to. Like, it knows that it's a thing that has to do while also trying to find a way to push it away as fast as it possibly can. Yeah. And and there's, there's other stuff that maybe touches on this, but this feels like the most that Andromeda really deals with it like in a way that the game like that the player can really interact with and it's it just ends up making that first encounter scene feel so much better by comparison because it is this really interesting moment where it's completely in your hands it's not even a dialogue Mm -hmm. wheel thing uh so it's kind of a bummer but we've got more bummers don't worry yeah (laughs) it's not even like that these particular aliens are gonna be the shining example of what Andromeda has to offer. And maybe they are also very similar to what we're talking about, but it's just, like, the principle of that conversation and that exchange, it's like, no. It feels gross. Mm-hmm. So, it feels bad. 
then we move on. Uh, we link up with Korra, who is also in a bad spot. We kind of fight a bunch of different uh, Ket, as we have learned. Have they been called Ket yet? No, they haven't been called yet. Ket yet. Yeah, uh, Ket yet. It's fun to say. Yeah. Um, and she she has a little bit of a badass moment blocking the uh, the falling. Is it falling debris, falling rubble, like a? I think it was lightning, like a lightning. Was, oh yeah, it was lightning. Yeah, it was, there's so much like just bad stuff. We haven't even talked about the fact that there's like those lightning fields that just like conduct you yeah. and stuff. Uh, it's like the the thunder plane from Final Fantasy Ten. I thought I was going to be the only one that thought of that, but I should have known. You have a freaking tattoo of Final Fantasy Ten. You would have thought of that yeah, as well. Yeah, boy. Uh, and I guess this, one thing we have not mentioned yet is that there are a bunch of little like side paths that you can run off into that have either extra things. Maybe there's, you know, like a, at one point you can find there's a tree underground. And so you're like, Oh, there is still natural like plant life growing here. Mm-hmm. that is not all weird and creepy. And, uh, another place you can find a research lab where, people were investigating things and then a robot wakes up and you're like oh what's going on here this is weird uh and all this kind of comes together because once you get to Korra one of your one of your crewmates from the ship fixes communications and not only can you get back in touch with Sam but you can get back in touch with your dad and you Mm -hmm. go and rendezvous with your dad where he was and they kind of make a reference at this point that he's a specter and because they walked by some bodies no, he like, was those N7, are... N7. N7 sorry yeah because uh, they're like oh those are incendiary rounds so N7 yeah. at work here and stuff yeah uh, so, you get like wanna... cool callbacks to the things that you went and right. found while you were getting there that I liked a lot yeah so what I feel like this section up to like the very end of this mission really sells is like I like that it kind of makes it feel like it's framing Alec Ryder as the protagonist of the story, like not necessarily the game, but like the story that is happening here, mm-hmm. because like he is the N seven, like he's on the like he's literally on the cover of the game, like on the box art. Um, it's like it, like there is a lot of feeling like you're having to live up to somebody, like you know, it's, like we can go into this new galaxy, but like we still have to live up to this person. Just like in the Milky Way, we had to live up to them in sort of like a not so great way, which we'll get into, but when. It comes to Andromeda. Like you're dealing with somebody who's basically a hero to all of these people, mm-hmm. and because like, and you even get like conversations with them later where he's like, "Oh, you did some scouting. Like he didn't expect you to, like he or something." And then like you can be like, "You didn't think I was going to," and he says, "You never really know what somebody's capable of until they get to you know they get their feet on the ground." So I like that idea that like you're because like it's, what happens later in this mission, like whether it's an emotional moment in terms of. Well, it sells, like, the empathy that comes with it. I do think that they do a really good job of selling you on the idea that you are having to live up to somebody. Mm-hmm. And I, the other thing I think is fun about this is we, we're now, like, into a combat mission where we're infiltrating this base and your your dad has set up these uh, charges to go off to take down mm-hmm. these lightning rods that have been zapping away all the lightning and so now they start zapping all the important things in the base rather than the lightning rods uh but as you're kind of moving through this base and striking forward you've got this guy who's like tally ho keep moving don't let them flank us swap my profile to this and he starts doing like 
all these biotics and all these crazy engineering moves and stuff. And not only is this kind of an abilities for what's going to come later, but it's also... I, I was sitting there going, like, is this what Shepard looked like to everyone who was yeah. watching him fight? Because I just, I have one move. I can do lift. And uh, <laughs> that's the one thing I do. Otherwise, I'm just shooting. But he's just running through there, just blowing people up and stuff. Just this force of destruction. And it's it's almost kind of goofy because he is kind of this total, like, follow me. Like, very heroic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, knight in shining armor charging into the front lines but it's it's really cool it kind of gives you a sense of where this game is going so i want to take like a quick pause here to just kind of talk about the differences in combat that we didn't really get to yeah Uh, so we've talked about it a little bit already and and let's just talk about it now so we don't have to like kind of shoehorn it in later uh, the thing that we were seeing our dad doing is the thing that eventually our character will be able to do, which is switch between profiles and have mm-hmm. different kind of ability loadouts. And they're all structured around uh, the classes of Mass Effect 1 through 3. I right. I think there's like one in there that's new, but I might be wrong yeah, about it's that. Yeah, the uh, Explorer, Explorer class. Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, it's all stuff that you understand very well. Like Biotic is basically Adept, and then you have... Uh, in fact, I think there is just an adept profile, mm. uh, and there's engineer, there's infiltrator, things like that. Uh, I will say the first time I played this game, I played infiltrator, so that probably affected mm. my enjoyment of the game a little bit because it's, I quickly learned I didn't enjoy playing as an infiltrator. No, but uh, that's a really cool idea because it lets you as you get more accustomed to the system you can start to kind of freely flow between mm-hmm. all those things kind of adapting to what's attacking you and having different ability right. loads out you can put all your points into one area if you want but you can also spread them out across all the different areas and be a very well-rounded character and i feel and like there's no i there's like no level cap either yeah so you can theoretically have everything yeah, I was going to say that like it, it feels very early on the way that they're just kind of doling out skill points to you is they're basically saying, you know, invest in what you want to invest in. There's not right. you're not going to have to min-max. That's a really cool thing. I like that a lot. That's maybe one of my favorite parts of the combat in this game in general. Uh and then you bring up kind of what one of my sticking points is, which is you do not have s- necessarily the breadth of squad commands that you normally do Mm. um you don't have the power wheel which sucks and the other thing you don't have is uh you can do like positioning and focusing but one of my favorite things was that i could kind of set my defaults on characters and so i knew that if i targeted them on enemies Mm -hmm. they would use their ability if it was off cooldown that specific ability so i was able to easily combo uh, in Mass Effect 1 through 3, and I was not really able to do that here. It just kind of felt very random. Like, teammates would follow up on the things I did, but since I was an adept, I was kind of activating my own combos. So I don't really care. Mm-hmm. And overall, it very early on, it just does not feel as much of a, like, tactical game as it does, yeah. like, a a bit more of a melee and eventually like the difficulty really ramps up in this game as it goes on Mm. and they kind of force you to 
think a little bit more about positioning and maybe not command your units, your squad mates, but maybe just think a little bit more about how and from where you're going to approach battles and stuff. But I did kind of miss a lot of the effective stuff that it gave you from Mass Effect 1 through 3. Right. I think my like how it feels to me is like Mass Effect 3 was a lot of like me using like Caden and Tally to set up combos for me to charge in and execute upon. Where in Andromeda I feel a lot more independent, but it also like why why is my squad even here? Like why yeah. like yeah. and that's that sucks to like I don't like I like feeling like I don't need my squad in in that way like I like I said I I like that independence, but it also like there was like a dynamic to the way that you played Mass Effect that is just not here anymore. Um, later on, there are like really tough fights. Like there's one in an optional mission in a later planet that'll actually be our next episode, where I felt like my squad mates were a bit of a hindrance because they kept getting downed in really bad spots and I would need them mm-hmm. to like back me up and kill the ads and stuff like that while I dealt with a very a much larger enemy and I just spent a lot of my time trying to save them and yeah. I, I that was kind of the moment where I was like why do I keep picking this person back up they're not actually like doing anything effective and I was like oh wait it's because they're bullet sponges for me so I can go do the things <laughs> I want to do and these two will tank like a third of the enemy fire each instead of me tanking all of it. And when I kind of had that realization, I was like, oh boy. <laughs> mm. um, the other weird thing is that as I can't remember how much they tell you about this, but I feel like I did not get enough explanation on it because I forgot for a while. I was like, hey, why aren't there any ammo abilities in any of these trees where's my ammo abilities they're consumables Hmm. now uh along with some other ones that i do like i like the idea of having the shield consumable that one's been super useful for me i've used it a lot i think that's a good addition but making incendiary and cryo ammo this consumable feels really skeevy because it immediately brings to mind like free-to-play trappings and things like that Hmm. yeah and i was just kind of like and also it meant i ended up using them less often because i was so like it's that rpg mindset of you end the game with 99 potions 99 elixirs and stuff like that because you never end up using them because you feel like you need to save them for something and then you just end up beating the game and you're like oh i never actually needed to save them for anything uh i wasn't wild about that I do agree. Like, I've just, over the course of however many times I've played this game, have not, like, I haven't gotten around to using, like, Incendiary Ammo in the same way. Like, I, I had it on every mission in mm-hmm. Mass Effect 2 and 3. But I also, like, I don't know, like, in the midst of like, everything else that you've got in this game, like, do you need that now? Because, like, if they had added it, you know, uh, as an ability as they always have, I don't know, that just feels like it's a, that's dumping points into something when you could like there are a bunch of other new abilities like things that were not in the old games that's true that, that is they probably true. want you they probably want you to like invest in and like try out so like if they can take something off of like what is going to cost ability points i i think that's a that's fine it's it's interesting I, i'm glad you brought that up because the last thing i was going to bring up about combat is that we've got kind of a return to like the mass effect 1 weapon system where it's just extremely in depth in a way that I'm mm. still kind of trying to wrap my head around. 
but I've already it's a lot. It's too much. I <laughs> I've already had moments where I'm like, okay, cool. Like I've got a gun and it's got mods. I understand that. And then it's like, yeah. hey, here's a research bench. And I'm like, cool, what am I upgrading? It's like, what do you want to upgrade? I don't know. Show me the menus. Here's the menus. Oh, my God, there's so many items in here. And it does no job of pointing you towards what might be useful. I mean, granted, it has the same kind of weapon approach where you just equip however many weapons you can hold. There's not really mm-hmm. class restrictions from what I can tell. Um, yeah. But at the same time... I mean, it's throwing you in there, and you've got some that are like, hey, if you craft this thing, then you're going to get a thing. And so that way, when you craft a gun in the future, you can put this in, and it'll have a special bonus different from the one that you're holding right now that's just vanilla. I'm like, okay, like, I kind of get that. That's a little bit, like, it's a little bit more than what I want to do with a Fire Emblem. Or Fire Emblem. Why am I thinking so much about Fire Emblem lately? Uh, that's a little bit more than I want to do with a Mass Effect but i'll take it you know like that's kind of neat and then they're like yeah well you've got those little ones down there but what if you had one that made it so instead of shooting bullets your gunshot grenades and i was like hell yeah how do i get that (laughs) it's like here's a bunch of icons and names of things you don't understand and i'm like where do you get those it's like google it you shithead and i'm like (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) and so that's like that was immediately where the rubber hit the road for me and Uh, that's probably not the right euphemism but it it was immediately where i was just like okay i'm not going to engage with a lot of this stuff and i get that they wanted to do a loot thing more similar to mass effect one that this was definitely a very popular thing around the time that this game was being made and it's definitely Mm -hmm. a thing that even like dragon age did where you had this kind of ever-increasing loot but immediately the thing i'm feeling with mass effect that i didn't feel with dragon age so with Dragon Age, you kill a big mob and you loot them, and that's all well and good. And you kind of look through the stuff, and you're like, okay, I got a bunch of junk. I'm just going to junk this. Okay, this is like, this has a level of rarity I can identify, and it's like, you know, maybe it's golden, so I know it's going to have some special abilities or things like that that you know will highlight parts of my build. At least with Mass Effect so far, it seems like not only is a lot of that stuff not tied directly to that sort of progression where you kill a thing to get a better thing that lets you kill things better. Like that feels like a very natural loop. Whereas Mm. here it's like you kill a thing and then it might drop resources and you put those resources into items and you turn those items into more items and then you pick that up and now you've got a better gun to go kill things to go. It's like extra added steps in that loop that also mean that you're having to go back to research centers. You're having to go back to all these hubs to be able to keep that loop going. It doesn't feel nearly as streamlined as I want it to. And so I just end up feeling... It's like, imagine if you're like a hamster running on a a wheel, right? And I don't mean Mm -hmm. that like derogatorily. I mean like, you know, your hamster having a good time on a wheel. But (laughs) now all of a sudden... Or or say you're running on a treadmill. And then every once in a while there's going to be like a speed bump that comes across the treadmill that you have to you like jump over or whatever. Even if you get used to the fact and get the rhythm for when that speed bump shows up, going to be looking at the treadmill that's smooth with a lot of jealousy in your eyes a lot of envy in your eyes mm-hmm. so and that's kind of like one of my overall big things with andromeda that we'll get to as we get to the more these more open worlds is that it just feels like there's so many of these speed bumps like there could have been somebody saying like hey let's smooth this experience out let's make it easier i want to get people from the thing they want to do to the thing they want to do and i want them to spend as little time as they have to doing any sort of thing that does not feel productive 
and I feel like right. a lot of my time in Andromeda feels unproductive. There's like a it's a running theme of like they at there I feel like there are just too many systems going on in yes, Andromeda yeah. at once, and a lot of that comes from like the loot and like the pers- they want you to have a perception that you need a lot more than you ever really do because like I'm gonna tell you now. I get through the entirety of Mass Effect Andromeda with one gun. Yeah, I get it upgraded to like the highest level, but I got that one gun and I'm set. And meanwhile, and like that sounds appealing, but at the same time, it's kind of like they've also given you no reason to want to change it at all. Right, and that's just and that also just comes from like I'm a very stubborn player. Like I have a very defined play style that I like. I gravitate towards, which is you know the charge shotgun Nova. Um, kind of loop that I've got going on. And so, and then meanwhile, there's, like, you know, all this loot, all these, like, these things, like, cryopods that you have to, like, later manage to get other resources and other upgradables and stuff. And like, I don't... Like, that appeals to, like, a very specific person that likes to... And there's, like, a, a completionist level of it, but it's more just, like, the people that like the grind of that. And that is not... It's not what I like in any game, but it's certainly not what I like in Mass Effect. So, there's a lot of things that, like, I kind of, like, set and forget throughout these games, which is, like, stuff like the cryopods and uh, doing the upgrades that, like, take, like, actual, like, real-world time to do, like, the way that, like... Because, like, you know, that's that goes back to, like, even Inquisition, where, like, you know, you could do a mission, and it's like, this is going to take three hours. And so, like, you can come back three hours and sort of reap the rewards of whatever it is. And they in the in Andromeda they have the way that like, you can speed that up by doing like a multiplayer mission, which you know that's all well and good if that's you know what you're here for. But again, it's just like if all these things feel so superfluous to like why I'm here, so like I just never engage with them. Yeah, it's we'll we'll get to cryopods and stuff later because that's like a we're not even there yet for a little while. But um, <laughs> there's. There is just a lot of management in this game, and not the kind that I normally enjoy. At, at, at one point, I was kind of. It was also the scanning. I felt like very early on, you have to do a scan. This this is actually in next episode that you would do it for the first time. But uh, even that, I was like, oh, I'm missing Mass Effect Two scanner. <laughs> it's, there's just so many. Like the planet oh, scanning? Yeah, like, oh, we're going to go to a system and you're going to see this big, long animation. You can skip it if you want to, but you're going to sit here and watch it otherwise. And you go from one planet to another planet, we're going to do this big, long, sweeping animation. It's like, man, how would you make this more, like, clogged up than Mass Effect was? Like, what was wrong with that system? <laughs> there was nothing yeah, wrong I think with that, that system. I think they want to, like, and specifically on, like, the planet... Like, going from planet to planet thing. I think they want to, like, portray the sort of, like, sweeping... We are traveling through space. We are going to be in awe of all this newness that we are engrossed in. Okay, fine, but just let me skip it. Like, I I, I saw it once. I think yeah, I've yeah. got the gist of show it. Show it to me once. Don't show it to me every single time. Like, just have right. that be, like, a setting I can tick somewhere. If you really want to have that as the default, have something that I can flip somewhere where it's, like, one-time cutscenes or something like that. Um, and like, and think, <laughs> thankfully they did add the skipping just because it was not there when the game came out. Oh, okay. Anyway. That also explains a lot about why I bounced off this game then. Because <laughs> I was like, the second I realized there was a skip, I was like, oh, thank God. If if there had not been one, oh boy. So, 
Oh boy, I, I locked away parts of this game. <laughs> anyway, have that uh, seven. Yeah, so we eventually charge through the whole tower. We get to the top of it. We kind of the working theory that our dad has here is that the tower seems to be at the kind of focal point of all the bad stuff that's happening. So maybe there's something we can do in the tower to reverse that. You know, it's solid shepherd thinking. That's what I like. Uh, and we we get up to the top there. We do kind of a holdout against a bunch of different enemies. We haven't talked about these enemies yet, but they're pretty basic. You know, they've got yeah, kind of they're the very melee, the melee dogs one. that can like cloak, which are kind of annoying. Uh, it's some like yeah. basic rifle dudes, and then some heavies that have some heavier machine guns. But it, it is very basic still at this point. Yeah. Uh, and then we go into the tower, and we have kind of a moment, kind of the Prothean beacon moment of. Mass Effect Andromeda, where yeah. our our dad interacts with the tower and then just to turn off the controls with help from Sam, who kind of deciphers what's been going on. And I, I do again like that what you're seeing here is something that you'll end up doing a lot of later in the game. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like an interesting way to set that up. Right. Uh, and then because like, like at this point, like Alec is still the protagonist of what's exactly. going on. Yeah, and like like literally like he does in the clouds part. Like, he's a like a fucking legend. Mm-hmm. But not all legends are completely invulnerable because uh, mm. then then a kind of power gust happens, and both our dad and Ryder kind of go tumbling a little bit, and when we come to our Ryder's helmet is just completely shattered, just completely yeah. busted up. There is no way some Omni Gel is going to fix that up. And our dad kind of looks over, and you see him pull up Sam and start to issue orders. And then it, it, the part I really like is that as he does this, he takes his helmet off and mm. exchanges it with yours. And one of the cool things I like is how it handles audio in this. Because you can hear him at the start when you both have comms on and when you both have your helmets off. Mm-hmm. Then once you have the helmet on and he's not wearing a helmet anymore, you can't hear him. And it's like a very cool moment where you're not seeing everything that's happening and you're just kind of trying Mm. to like struggle through it. But obviously, you know, then we kind of have these blackout fade outs and uh, it's a very, it's a sad moment. It's, we don't immediately learn what has happened, even though we kind of know what is happening in the moments. And they managed to do a lot to set this moment up to be emotional, despite the fact that you've known this character for all of about maybe like 15 minutes. It's, I'm, I'm being honest like you've this character you should not have any emotional attachment to this character because you barely know who they are you know it's like oh it's your dad uh but i think the things you were mentioning earlier on with being able to kind of determine what your relationship is with that character and and this the small exchanges that you have the as you're leaving you know they as you're leaving for habitat seven he mentions that you know like your mother would be proud of you right. and things like that you kind of have like a discussion about your sibling and all that they mm. do a very good job with very little for this character right uh that that really impressed for me. sure yeah so now we're back on the nexus we come to here's I, I gotta ask you this i gotta ask you this who was there when you woke up liam liam was there okay oh, mm. i thought they pulled another Caden and ashley on me and i was like nope okay good so it is yeah. the good puppy dog hanging out at the hospital yeah. bed Thank you, Liam. They, 
like, and we'll talk about this more, like, even just, like, in the very beginning of this game, and I, I got a very specific example in the next episode that we'll talk about, but, like, they, they it, it is refreshing to know that this is a Mass Effect post-Dragon Age Inquisition, where they kind of, like, learned how to not thrust expectations on people, or if, like, if they do give you a very easy way out. Mm-hmm. Because, like, yeah, it, it is Liam that comes, it is Liam that's there, regardless of whether you're male or female. So yeah. like it's like it, so you get the sense that that character genuinely just cares rather than this person has been has been plucked in here by the powers that be to be there by your bedside when you wake up. Yeah, and yeah, like I was talking earlier in the episode, and that was like specifically why I brought it up was this idea that the character that wakes up whenever you're coming out of like a big moment like that is usually like meant to convey some sort of like thing to the player. Right. And here, like it's Liam who is a very has already been established as a very comforting factor. They're a very down-to-earth person. They do not... They've not been established as someone like Korra who might have expectations of you, who might want to, like, antagonize you a little bit. It's a very welcoming person. Uh, And so the idea that it's Liam here always is, like, just really neat. I don't know why I, like, latch on to those little things, but I do. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, like, when you've you've had three games, or, like, two and a half games of, like, a game very much pushing certain things to like notice when they've it's been long enough that they have changed perspective and that like, they don't fall in or like push you into these same sort of roles and mm-hmm. expectations and it, it's just it's nice because like you you see that people can change like like philosophies can change in the way that these games are designed which is nice well and that's the other interesting thing is like you're talking about how much time it was between mass effect one and andromeda but think about how much time it was between mass effect three and andromeda it was like a whole right we were all the way into a console generation at that point and right there was a lot of room for them to kind of improve and grow and there were definitely like the games that came before andromeda were ones that gave bioware a lot of new things so i mean it was really just one right i don't think dragon age 2 came before mass effect 3 yeah so yeah. Um, but Inquisition as a game was very much something that Bioware kind of had a lot to learn with and it gave them Mm -hmm. a lot to kind of expand on and you can see how that's reflected here I mean and this is a podcast where we just talk about Bioware like we'll start to notice their storytelling tropes at some point (laughs) Um, (laughs) we'll start to see the the writers bylines on this Uh, so as as we kind of determine, we have become the new Pathfinder, and for some reason that has been passed to us rather than passed to uh, Korra, who is who would be the right. second in command, logical next person. And at first, we're very disoriented about why this is. Korra starts to turn into Karen, and uh, <laughs> I had to get it out Oof. at least once. <laughs> uh, oh, there's gonna be other opportunities to get it out because. Yeah, uh, and we eventually learn that the reason this is is because Sam is maybe not the most normal partner AI that there's been. Uh, right. Sam has been, and so here's here's something I'd like you to help me clear up because this is something I felt the story did not do enough exposition on. But you, mm-hmm. as somebody who has played this game many times or read the books, you might have a little bit more might be able to Mm -hmm. explain it slower to me um okay there's so did Ryder already have the sam framework within their body prior to the events of habitat okay yeah so what 
all of the Pathfinder team has like an implant so they can speak like with each other but also with Sam at the same time. And so it's sort does of like, that include Korra then? Korra would also Yeah, that. that includes everybody. Everybody on the Pathfinder team. Uh so like Liam as well. Um do your they, your sibling. I was later on as as more characters join your ship, do they get that implant as well or uh I don't I know that there's at least one conversation where you have that you have with somebody where they're like, nah, that's not going to my head and like if you want them in my comms, that's fine. But I'm uh, not okay. you know Okay. Yeah. Um so that so, was that was one thing yeah. I felt was not clear because I thought that was one of the reasons for why uh young writer was chosen rather than Korra was because they already had the implants. But Right. So what what ended up what ended up happening was uh Sam or at least the human Sam, because like as a reminder, like every Pathfinder team of every species has has a Sam. Sam. Yeah, yeah, and but the human one, as we find out here and later, is a little bit more. There's a little bit more to them than the rest of them, and so like Lexi even says, like Sam is somehow connected to you in a way that we don't quite understand, and it goes to like the physiology, like of like how uh, Ryder can now and Alec Ryder could previously like switch between these different classes and different uh sort of like augmentations mm-hmm. so they're able to do like yeah, engineering that's... hacks and things like that and then immediately like mm-hmm. use biotics whereas theoretically you could have up to this point been a non-biotic character then now right. suddenly you're able to use biotics that's kind of the reasoning behind it um, right so it's very interesting i feel like this is the start of a very interesting plot thread because what I think it does is it kind of brings up those ideas of synthesis and mm-hmm. kind of like starts to wrestle with them. Like we talked a lot yeah. in our in our last episode, which was the end of Mass Effect 3, about like issues of consent and whether you would want to be augmented like that or not. Here we have Ryder who has basically learned that she has been augmented. It's not like just a tiny implant, like her or their entire physiology has changed. And they have not really had a choice in that and they have to kind of start to deal with that and also with the fact that you know they not only do they not have a choice in it but it's not like they suddenly became a part synthetic where they have like a robotic arm or something they have another pretty much living being inside them Mm -hmm. now and that has happened overnight and i think it's one of the more interesting plot threads as we start going here because Mm -hmm. And this is maybe where I get a little annoyed because then they kind of go like, "Oh, we're gonna like gamify this a little bit." So they give yeah. they give you I mean, these um yeah. these memory shards, and this is kind of your first interaction with what the that plot line with Sam and and the memory of your dad is going to be, which is you find these memory shards, which are just kind of glowing pieces of light out in the world, and the idea is that your dad knew you were going to take over at some point as Pathfinder and Mm. he programmed it so that as you did more pathfinding, you would eventually start to uncover more about his past and kind of how the whole Mm. initiative came to be and some other things involving uh, his personal life. Right. And that's a cool idea in theory, but I have to seriously question why it wasn't just, tied to story progress in s- yeah, instead and of just like hey here's some tokens you gotta go pick up all across the land right. and like especially and with, like we're gonna 
put a pin in this until probably like the last episode oh, of the yeah, season. Oh yeah, we will not actually get back to the story beat until the last episode. So. And the but the thing is like it is probably at least from like a massive like a granular Mass Effect the franchise like perspective the most important mission in this game. Yeah. And yet I, like I it, it, it is miss- it is much. completely missable. Yeah, it is completely missable. Like Mm. I'm looking forward to uncovering it, though I'm maybe not looking forward to doing the things that I will need to do to get to that point. I, like, I'll, I'll tell you now, like, the actual gathering of these things is not that big. Like, in, oh, there's just going to be a day grand... where I put on a podcast and get all of them. Like, probably yeah. when I'm near the end of the game and I'm at that, like, point yeah. of no return, I'll just put on a podcast and go get all of them. Like, yeah, that, it'll be just PG. So, yeah, if you are playing along along with the show... Go do like go look for these memory shards because they are important. That's one of like several side quests I think we've identified. Because the other thing to note is that as we get further, obviously that will not. Well, we'll talk. We'll actually talk a little bit about some of them here. But there are side quests in this game, and they're not necessarily structured the same as like Mass Effect One through Three, where they kind of tie into mm. different parts of the game. But you know, you have these larger missions. Uh, it's maybe a little bit closer to Mass Effect Three, and that. There are some that are multiplayer missions, the kind of Apex missions. Mass Effect was Apex before Titanfall was. <laughs> and uh, then you also have these, I guess what you call like tier two side quests that are just kind of like neat little stories. Mm-hmm. And, and the level of yeah. interactivity in them is varies from mission to mission. Uh, so like a good example is... There's uh, one on EOS, which will be our next episode, which is about, like, this secret mission and the secret project, and you end up, like, finding this big monster and picking up these parts, but there's not really a lot of dialogue or anything. It's a lot more exploration and combat, whereas one that we will talk about later this episode is much more dialogue-focused, pretty much purely dialogue-focused, and introduces a lot more interesting things and, and does more stuff yeah. in that area. I like that there is kind of a blend that they that they yeah. strike though i feel already like it's starting to lean more towards the combat stuff than towards the dialogue stuff but i think if you get through the game there it's a there's a pretty fair balance at least in like terms of the stuff mm-hmm. that's like the the more like okay like if there's main missions like the second tier of missions i feel like are yeah. more varied well so that's like that's like tier two let's call it like a tier and then like s tier is like the actual big side quest you have like loyalty missions and you have some mm-hmm. other much larger quests like the memory one or like movie night and things like that that are much larger and have a lot right. more going on in them and are just way more fleshed out than like the lower tier side missions they're just kind right. of contained to one planet or one area maybe a couple uh anyways so we arrive at the nexus as the new pathfinder reluctant to bear the crown that we are mm. uh and at this point, you you kind of like you can kind of not even accept that you're the Pathfinder yet. You can just kind of be right. like, whatever. I'm just I'm here because I have to be here. Where else am I going to go? Yeah. So uh, we arrive at the Nexus, and huh, looks looks a little quiet. There's no other arcs here. Yeah. There's a uh, there's some construction that's still being done, and this is supposed to be like the Citadel of the Andromeda, but something's a little a little off. Something, yeah. Uh, so finally we get into a place uh, we we set up that things are already going bad that the Nexus is probably going to get worse 
and mm-hmm. we go in and immediately i have shades of mass effect one the citadel after sovereign has started attacking it because i mean just everything's just it's not destroyed right. it doesn't look like there's necessarily been an attack but it does look like there's been some sort of like dust up it not recently but like it's in the middle of being repaired still and right. uh we get to talk to avina who answers none of our questions <laughs> no uh and then finally we find a construction worker who after having a mild bit of a freak out basically informs us that they've been there for about i think it's 14 months yeah and no one else has shown up we are the first arc to show up uh the asari turian and salarian arcs have not reported in whatsoever uh and we start getting on our way to talk to some nexus folks because they're all freaking out because they're like oh my god there's actually an arc here we all thought we were just going to die in space uh (laughs) still can (laughs) jury's still out on that one yeah so first person we meet this is a nice little tie-in like now that i've played uh omega i like this a lot uh tyrant tyrant kandros Tyrion, Tyrion. I always call him. I always call him Kandros, but Tyrion yeah, Kandros. Yeah, I've everybody. Uh, is Nyrene's cousin, which is a neat mm-hmm. little. Uh, he makes a little reference uh, when you talk to him about yeah. why he's doing what he wanted to do. He's like, "Oh, you know, I was kind of the the prodigals or the prodigal son, the chosen son. You know, everyone else was mm-hmm. doing things like my cousin Nyrene got into gang stuff on Omega, and I was like, oh, that's so cool. Uh, I know her. Yeah, it's." It's a good time. Uh but we kind of yeah. get the we get the quick of what's happened from Kandros that basically no arcs have shown up and there was some sort of rebellion, a mutiny that happened. Mm. And that's the reason why A you don't see a lot of people here and B a lot of the leadership is maybe not who they're supposed to be. So like the architect mm-hmm. of the Andromeda initiative is dead along with a lot of the top yeah. leadership and like like it talks about like the scourge as which is that energy cloud that we ran into right. as well basically not the nexus the nexus of its course yeah yeah which resulted in the deaths of basically like i think it was like seven people that were supposed to be in charge and it's kind of wild because that time i was trying to remember i think they died while they were in cryo yeah, some of them did. Mm. Yeah, because there's like a note that somebody says about like they went to sleep thinking they were going to Andromeda and never woke up, and that like stuck yeah. with me. I was like, oh my god, mm. that's there's there's so much about like I it sounds a little bit morbid, but there's a lot of talk about like death and life in this game, the idea mm-hmm. of finding new life and what that means for your old one and stuff. There's a lot of, like symbolism around yeah. that, and I, I find that like it's morbid, but it's also very interesting as a theme mm. that they keep touching on i, yep. I just enjoy it. I'm, I'm we'll keep talking about it as we go but uh yep. we get to kind of start to meet all what the new leadership is and the first one is another uh besides kandros the the first one that we that we meet of the major high up leadership is uh jaren tan who, mm. um, number eight so kumail kumail nanjani i hope i said that right um who many people will know from his his work in various comedies like um why can i not think of the name of it uh, it's not the big short it's the um the the big sick the big sick yeah mm-hmm. uh 
things like that. He's a wonderful guy. Great on Twitter. Love him. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast <laughs> for some reason, big fan. Uh, please donate to our Patreon. You, you did a really <laughs> great job in this game. Yeah. Uh, he does a great job of playing a character I don't like. And that is some of the highest praise I can give to a voice actor. <laughs> is I enjoy not liking this character. Because... No. He, uh Jaron Tan is kind of the he's the new director and as you gradually begin to understand he is very much a business oriented bottom line oriented mm. person and he's also not very empathetic as a person no. uh and very opportunistic yes super racist against Krogan mm-hmm. uh we yeah. get, he gives us a little bit of like background on where things are going but you also get the sense that even though he was kind of thrust into leadership it's not like he was wholly against the idea uh he's he's very much like a like you said opportunistic he is taking advantage of what he's got but he's also kind of there's a great conversation you can have with him if you're very standoffish with him where you're basically you know he's like i'm not gonna screw around with you you know i I'm here to do a thing and and there's a lot of expectations on you to perform. They're going to look to you and everybody might be happy right now, but they're going to be pretty mad soon if you don't find a new home world. Yeah. And you can kind of turn it back around on him and be like, well, the way I see it, you need me because people are going to be at your throat mm-hmm. pretty soon here if you don't produce results and like food shortages are everywhere and stuff. So look, uh, you basically can kind of reach a mutual distrust of each mm-hmm. other just the fact that you need each other but you do not trust each other uh, right. which I really like it's like a good it feels like what I wish I had a little bit more of with the elusive man because I feel mm-hmm. in Mass Effect 2 maybe because I was playing a paragon and that's that's a bit of the difference here and maybe your experience was different but uh, I felt like Shepard was just very willing to kind of you know jump yeah. on board with Cerberus and let's sure whatever let's do this thing and I like a, a little bit of the animosity that you initially experience here in the Andromeda Initiative yeah. because it's very much closer to what I want from that sort of power dynamic. And even, and we'll, like, we'll, we'll talk about the other ones because we got two more that we got to mention as well. What I just appreciate is that you've got what is basically the equivalent of the Council in mm-hmm. like the original trilogy, and they were all kind of this like, at least until like, maybe Mass Effect Three, like they were all this kind of like this face of this one entity and like you didn't really get the sense of like like what drives them to the decisions that they make right right we're here like you get like each character has like an individual backstory you understand the dynamics they have between each other and towards you so you know tan you know he kind of fell into his role where kesh a character that we'll talk about in a little bit she is somebody that's maybe more capable and more more of like the person that you would naturally assume would end up taking over and they there was like catastrophic death towards the leadership of the initiative but he very like he's a very opportunistic person so like he wants it for himself and he also doesn't like krogan so like he doesn't want her mm-hmm. to have it and then you know we'll talk to another character named addison later she had some like she has resentment towards you for basically being your father's child because she has animosity towards him just like because everything has gone to shit mm-hmm. and he was the one that kind of like drove everyone here so i like that like the sort of like governing force that you're having to deal with like the red tape has a personality it has a backstory mm-hmm. and it has actual reasoning behind like rather than just like 
we gave you this power and we're just kind of like gonna fuck with you the entire trilogy it's it, yeah i like that a lot that it's putting a face on the red tape and it just adds so much more because so you have tan who you can kind of have a begrudging distrust with uh addison who is just actively antagonized against you and you know she's yeah. very much like oh i'm having second thoughts and stuff is like well t- tough shit <laughs> like uh and she at least where i'm at has not had a lot of character development beyond that uh besides like one interesting conversation on eos that we'll get to next episode yeah. but uh then we have kind of our third pillar of all this who is nak Kesh, a we stand oh yeah 100 percent uh a the krogan superintendent of the station uh and she's kind of this she's played off of it as like okay you have tan who is just trying to keep the stranglehold of authority that he can still muster you have addison who is just kind of whiling away the days and wants to be angry at anything for why things aren't going her way you have Kesh, who's the one trying to keep it all together and very the only one that's given Ryder anything remotely resembling benefit of the doubt yeah and Kesh very early on is is much friendlier it's similar to Kandros and that's maybe another like interesting dynamic is that very early on in Mass Effect 1 you're you're kind of given this idea that like you see it through Shepard's eyes that the humans don't trust aliens and things like that but here on Andromeda it's the the highest up human absolutely trusts you the least and actively right. almost actively wants to see you fail <laughs> and yeah. while the the friendliest person is a Krogan and Turian and that's it's really interesting and I also think that carries yeah. a little bit of weight because of Mass Effect as a whole by this point we are accustomed to all these different races I feel like players mm-hmm. might even start to drift more towards Krogan and Turian because of the influence of characters like Garrus and Rex. But right. uh, setting these up and like the idea that we have a female Krogan lead is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Like this this character who's very prominent who's also a female yeah. Krogan who can give us really interesting yeah, insight the... on the genophage. Like... Right. Yeah, and because like they even point out because like they they obviously they were not in the Milky Way when we ended up curing the genophage. So... Mm-hmm. What they did find out was like the Nightmore clan, which is who was like primarily like most of the Krogan that are in the Andromeda Galaxy come from that clan. And they had somewhat of like they were showing signs of an immunity and so they underwent gene therapy while like the six hundred years that they were in stasis, so now they've increased viability to I mean just above four percent, which is still more way more than it was initially. So but uh, to touch on that point, like you're like we have a female Krogan who is like at the forefront of the initiative we also have, and we'll get to her in a little bit, like, the main Turian of this game is a female Turian. And what I love about that is that, like, we didn't even see female Turian and female Krogan until Mass Effect 3. And even, well, in the case of Turians, not until the DLC of Mass Effect 3. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I like that, like, you, you take this opportunity to put these characters in the forefront very early on. So we don't have to, you know, theoretically spend three games wait until the end to see them some more it i don't want it to sound like a thing where i'm just saying like oh i love the diversity in this game but it really is like it it feels like a cast that is already very alive and and vibrant mm-hmm. and has their own stories each has their own kind of different perspective and outlook 
And mm-hmm. there are very few characters who felt as cookie cutter as like Ashley did very early on. Right. You know, you don't have those kind of like Jenkins characters who exist just to kind of like have a moment. It, like you do have right. Fisher and Kirkland and stuff, but even then they kind of have their own quirks. You can like talk to them before that mission and kind of learn who yep. they are. And eventually things will kind of transpire that, that you will learn more about them. And you can just really tell that, they were this is Bioware getting like really good at their character writing in this universe and also having right. freedom to do as much character writing as they want without the constraints of the Milky Way. Uh-oh. Right. And that, that comes from like this I mean we guess we tell this now. Um that is like a running theme throughout uh Andromeda is that a lot of these characters yeah, they come from species that we know, but like they're all very much plays on sort of like the established culture that we knew of them in the Milky Way. Like, an example would be, like, PB, who we'll talk about next episode. She is an Asari, but she's not... She's not Liara. She's not Samara. She's not, this like, this very wise, poised character that exists as almost, like... You know, like, outside of their combat role, but, like, this almost advisor role of, like, wisdom for to impart upon the humans. So, like... And then there's Vetra as well, who does not is not the very rule-abiding militaristic person that Garrus was, or at least, you know, initially when we meet him at CSEC. Mm-hmm. So, like, I like that they use this new setting of, like, people that wanted to get away from a certain culture and to, like, have, you know, not be held down by the expectations of what they've grown up in to come to something like Andromeda and be themselves and be different and, you know, just be refreshing in that sense. Because, like, you know, we had had three games of this very hegemonic culture of uh-huh. all these different things. So I, I like that we can have... You know, there are these characters that have the freedom to be something new. I like the idea that this is like an island of misfit toys. Like, there's there's a line yeah. that I love in a show called Sports Night where this character is, like, freaking out because he doesn't want to make waves. They, they want him to go record, like, produce a, a hunting show for their hunting vertical or whatever, and... And he doesn't want to say no, even though he, like, detests hunting. And so he passes out while he's out producing because he sees a, a deer get shot. And <laughs> when they bring him back, they're like, why didn't you Why didn't you tell me? He's like, I was afraid I wasn't going to... I was afraid you were going to think I wasn't a fit. I was afraid that you were going to, like, think lesser of me because of it. And the, the executive producer says, fitting in... Not fitting in is usually how people end up here. And... Mm-hmm. I really like that line because it's just like the idea that there is a place for everyone no matter where they just need to find it and that comes with a lot of pain of not fitting in in other places but like that heartwarming mm-hmm. feeling when you do find your band of misfit toys you're like this right. is this is right and that's like what the tempest starts to feel like you know you get a little bit of that in the normandy i feel like it's a little bit more in 2 and 3 that you have that sense of camaraderie and, and family as opposed to one where it's much more like oh we're just kind of this ragtag bunch of people who all kind of assembled together yeah. whereas like two and three is much more the same vibe that you get in this game and that is like very early on they set that up and i like it a lot um mm-hmm. so we basically we get told that we're going to be given a ship and uh, we got to go pathfind. You know, we got to do the thing that we're supposed to do. But before mm. we go check in, in our ship, we got a few things we got to check out. Uh, first, Kandros kind of gives us the little like, "Hey, this is how you do multiplayer in this game." <laughs> mm. uh, here's the Apex stuff. 
but you also get some like, like i mentioned earlier you get those notes of him wanting to escape that chosen life for him of, of being a prestigious turian in the military and all that uh kind of wants to carve his own path I, I like him a lot he's a good character yeah uh yeah. we we already talked about getting the sam memory stuff we kind of jumped ahead a little bit there uh but we, this is this is actually where sam gives us the rider family secrets quest and then we also kind of get just a little bit of that exposition it's also where well so first of all uh let's do first memory here that we get uh alec it's it's alec our dad trying to sell the idea of an ai to other humans as something to bring forward Mm -hmm. to the council and that kind of sets up very early on that like you know we have this kind of preconceived notion of what ai eventually becomes thanks to mass effect 3 and and how ed developed but it shows you how both forward thinking and controversial uh writer's dad was back at the time and it almost mm. like the sense i got from it was this is maybe why he wanted to go to andromeda like or this is maybe why yeah. someone of his status and renown like no one tried to stop him from going to andromeda because they just kind of saw it as like oh writer's that one who won't shut up about ai and putting ai in people's yeah. brains and stuff so maybe it'd be better if we just let him go on a crazy suicide mission out to andromeda and then go go in the opposite direction exactly uh and then we also get a little bit of information here about our mother who we have actually not heard much about up to this point but we do learn that uh she is afflicted with an illness and that this memory this first memory that we're seeing is when uh Ryder's father finds out that it's terminal and he ends the the memory by saying like i'm going to find a way to fix it right uh it's a little it's a little emotional it's and you kind of get the sense that like we are kind of backtreading through like we've we've seen Ryder's dad as the shepherd style hero now we're kind of seeing them at their lowest point and i always think that's like interesting that these are the memories that he has chosen to lock away for his Mm -hmm. children and so i I do not know how this quest ends. I never looked up how it mm-hmm. ends. So I'm interested to see where it goes from here. Uh, it definitely like piqued my interest. And then they were like, now collect mm-hmm. more of these tokens. And I was like, fuck you, video game. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. But while we're exploring around, we also find some audio logs about Liara fucking to Sony. What the Hell fuck is yeah. up? Uh, you do note here, yeah, I was getting the same sense that given the timeline, when this stuff has probably happened, this is all probably pre-Shepard, pre-planet um, that I can't remember the name of right now, place where you find her, the dig site, the all that. Uh, oh, God. I know, right? Because I always think of it I, as I the Prothean I knew this 30 site. seconds ago. <laughs> uh, it's, it's probably pre-all that uh much younger liara to sony back in her days but you get some interesting insight it, it, they kind of play it off as oh she's telling Ryder about how to deal with like alien cultures and understanding alien cultures yeah. when you don't understand their language and things like that which is all very interesting because obviously she would know a lot about that as studying the protheans but also like it was definitely just a way for bioware to be like hey liara the character we all know yeah. and love like it, it, it does come down to like she is a constant they can count on because she cannot die so mm. oh yeah that's true like that's there true. 
Yeah. I mean, unless you're like really bad at Mass Effect Three, then she can die. But wait, really? Well, like if you have low uh, war assets, oh, whoever you take, I thought when you, you meant dies. That, yeah, I was thinking like something that would happen before you know the ending and the war assets and things like that. Okay. Yeah, um, only if you're like, yeah. That's that's interesting. Uh, and now we get to see the Tempest, which is definitely not the Normandy. <laughs> uh, it nice though. It, it it does look pretty nice. I like the weird kind of thing. Like it's got a weird. I'm trying to remember. I'm picturing it in my head, but I don't know if I'm picturing it right. It's does it have like the weird circle thing on the back? That's like the weird hoopy thing. Am I thinking right? Am I thinking of the right ship? I'm gonna pull it up. So yeah, no, we can... I'm, I'm pulling up a picture. Tempest Andromeda. Doesn't it have like a hoopy thing on the back. Yeah, it's it kind of like it kind of like tails. Why is my brightness on my phone so low? This is great radio. Yeah, well, it's got like that weird like circle thing in the middle in the back that that's really neat. I just remember seeing that. And I was like, oh, it's yeah. a cool design. I like that a lot. Uh, yeah, and we also get to meet Vetra, who is our female Turian companion, and she makes quite an entrance. Uh, I love yeah. this intro of her being like wheeling and dealing, and you know. Mm-hmm. No, I got, I got this. Let me take care of this and stuff. It's yeah. very, very confident, very like black market. I'm like, this is the kind of person I need on board my ship. I got too many, uh, yeah. got too much regulation around here. I need some deregulation. Too many suits. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, like, I mean, she knows how to like get to the heart of somebody. Because like, she this, there's this dude that walks up like, oh, you can't leave now. There's still so much inspection we got to do. And she's like, hey, what if I get your son out of cryo? <laughs> like, what if I did that for you? <laughs> and he's like, okay uh queen yeah it's it's good i love it uh so so then we get to go on board the tempest we're not gonna spend much time talking about it because i think a lot of this stuff is gonna end up coming up later on as we talk more about uh conversations we haven't really decided yet how we're gonna handle how that stuff progresses i we're probably gonna play it a little bit by year week by week but i mean i think i think we can at least have these intro conversations like oh the intro conversations for sure i just mean like how each one of them progresses because obviously you might progress along certain ones faster than i do like i'm probably going to progress pretty quickly through like vetra and pb whereas you might be going faster through other characters uh it'll be interesting to see how that shapes out uh cora will be last (laughs) um (sighs) so we get kind of a quick rundown i do like that this is all kind of one ship. It is a little annoying yeah. having to use the lift elevator every now and then. Uh, I, well, there are ladders next to it anyways, but one time I was like, oh, use the lift elevator, and I was like, this sucks. <laughs> this is, this yeah. is dumb. Uh, but it is real nice how not only how open it is, but also how clearly everything on the map is labeled. It felt very easy yeah. to just get to where I wanted to go, and also that made it easy for them to do cool things like instead of having the the token assistant who's just kind of their your trainer or your uh kelly chambers who's like oh you've got messages on your terminal and stuff you just kind of get buzzed on the intercom like hey come see me in the bio lab when you have a minute yeah. i was like oh that's i like that a lot because that feels way more personal and like yeah. and also like the ship is a living thing like there are people doing things on it and Oh. You know, and like you walk through this banter happening about things that are like you know whether it was like your last mission or just like these storylines and threads that everyone kind of is in on as they go that are like game long as it goes as the game goes on it really does a good job of making this ship feel very lived in and yeah. so we can kind of go over the ones we have now there is like a 
kind of heroic speech you get to give the first time you take off and all that um mine was very hopeful it was very much like it was hopeful but it was also like hey we need to find a home so people can live like we're here now let's make the most of it uh yeah i was basically the same way just like very or it was like hopeful but also like we're here for adventure we are here to like discover things that nobody else has seen Ah, okay. I was I, I did not go that route. I think I went mostly that route, and then the last one I was like, "Hey, also, I'd like to live." <laughs> so, um, we can start here with Callow, uh, who is our pilot, our Joker, um, Solarian with photographic memory. Uh, yeah, it's he's an interesting. He's an interesting character. Very early on, I I think he's. Yeah. I think it's interesting that he's not that Joker type, whereas Joker was always kind of the affable, like, oh, Joker. Like, mm. very early on, I was getting a sense about Kalo that I was like, this is going to be a really interesting character that kind of developed. And, and granted, like, you have the advantage of knowing how all this stuff pans out, whereas I don't. So uh, I'm sure you're, like, listening to me and being like, oh, you have no idea. Um, <laughs> I He's interesting, though. It's like a dynamic. Again, it's another one of those dynamics that we haven't really seen because the only Solarian yeah. squad mate we've had at this point is Morden. That was for one game. Yeah. So he's not even a squad mate, but the idea that we have like a pilot here who is Solarian who has this yeah. different take than Joker is very interesting. But he's he's also like similar to Joker. He's a very sentimental person about the ship, which is something that again, like Morden is like you know the primary face of the Solarians for the trilogy, and he's a very calculated person. Like he certainly like by the time it's over, like he has a very sentimental person. But, like, at the outset to have somebody like Hallow, who is not, you know, the very analytical, kind of guarded Solarian, is very refreshing. Uh, Suvi, not as wild about her. Uh, I I see here that you love her. I had a... I do. I had a very... Let me just say that she's someone I am also interested to see how this storyline develops, because right away we got to, like, let's talk about God. (laughs) And I was like... (laughs) (laughs) okay and like i answered very honestly i was like i don't think there is a god or well it really only gives you a binary option so i couldn't really answer like totally honestly but we don't need to talk about religion on the show but um it's uh it yeah so let me let me frame this a little bit you you live in the south I, do. I live in the south you do we've had conversations like this before yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> where you're just kind of having a normal conversation and then they're just kind of like it's all thanks to jesus and i'm like mm-hmm. and you just kind of have that moment where you're like you have to either kind of be like yep or no that's really all you can do <laughs> and and I even then, I smile they, at them. Yeah, you. I don't you like smile. it. Not even like. Not even like a. Oh, you. Oh, you know. Bless your heart. Smile, but just kind of like smiling, like I heard you, like uh-huh. affirming that that is like that is yeah. something that I like. Yeah, yeah. And it's well, and the reason I bring it up is because sometimes that's where the conversation ends, and then sometimes it turns into it does not have you brought the Lord Jesus into your life and that was kind of where this like i felt like i was attacked in this sufi dialogue like it i have had so many 
conversations exactly like this and i played it out like exactly how i probably would in real life and it kind of led to the like i i enjoyed that her character was basically like even if you don't believe what i believe i still think that there's like beauty to be found in that uh Mm. you know i i think her character is is an interesting take because this this idea of like a religious scientist and somebody who's studying science because they want to understand their faith uh is interesting i'm just really hoping that's not the only note that she plays um because that was the other thing i was worried about in this like these initial dialogues is that i was like is this her one beat is this her thing is this all her things are going um, to be i think once you get into like some of the later developments in the game and her trying to grapple with that like some of the discoveries that are that happen later Mm. I think it brings on some more interesting and kind of like very refreshingly frank discussions of religion that like games don't want to touch because they're made by a bunch of pussies. <laughs> but I hold your judgment on her. Okay, that's where I'll leave it. Yeah. Um, Vetra again, fantastic. Love Vetra. Love this introduction to Sid. Uh, this this sibling yeah. connection. Learning about her. Her black market connections and all that the way that she kind of became who she was and and why she is the way she is i love that you can ask like how do you get all these things you know people came here with what they came with and she's just kind of like hey everybody brought something and everybody's got a price so uh yeah she's her setup's great and then also the the flirting you can do with her as at least as female writer is pretty great as well uh so so i guess we can i guess we can establish this now are you pursuing Vetra? Is that your is that your goal? Uh, I'm I'm bouncing around right now. I'm not settled on who I want to romance this game. Mm, okay. Uh, I've I've flirted with Vetra, with PB, with just about everybody who has a heart. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're just gonna play the field a little bit, and see what falls, where the chips fall, where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I probably will not romance. I've already I've already kind of set aside. Uh, I don't think I'm gonna romance Liam. Uh, I just kind of want to see how his normal stuff plays out. Yeah, I probably will not romance the doctor, even though I had like romance options with her. I did not. Really you you cannot her. romance okay, her. Well, there you go. That makes it easier. Um, well, we can then segue into uh, Lexi, who is our chocolus, as we find out our old doctor was like, "I'm good. I'm not doing this. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna take a normal job." So Lexi wanted to come along and as I don't want to romance her, but she's a really cool character. I like that. You yeah. know, here, like she just straight up just gives you a shot. She's like, whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, she also, I like that. She's like, Hey, bring me a cat body. Like, <laughs> if, you, if you can get one of them on the ship, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, she's like, she's gonna be like a life specimen would be better, but I mean, I'm not picking. Yeah. It's, I like how quickly she's just like, she goes from normal mode into freak mode. She's just like, you know, give me a body. <laughs> like Kendrick Lamar <laughs> voice. Y'all seen the dead body. <laughs> uh, okay. So I was delayed. Let's, let's talk about Liam next. Okay. Let's, let's do Liam okay. and then Gil. And then we'll talk about <laughs> Cora. Okay. Um, Liam. He's just, he's a bro, man. He's such a bro. It's, I, how can you not love how bro he is he brought a couch i still don't understand like i love that that's like a thing that you kind of hear 
some of the crewmate talk about it and they're like hey did you see them yeah. like, there's that like couch where do you get that and then his whole intro is him like pushing the couch into place and he's like yeah i just wanted a couch yeah. i wanted a chill place where i could chill and i'm like liam's all right i like liam yeah good guy yeah uh, he's a fun guy to have around mm-hmm. i i like him i can already tell him i don't like him uh gill so man this dude's got i mean he just he lets it rip he's got attitude he's got he he does not give a shit about who you are as a pathfinder he's i i like him a lot just even just because like the idea that we have an engineer that has like more personality than any other engineer combined up to this point but also because that was the one thing i was kind of like hoping for was that there was going to be one character aboard besides cora who was just like i don't give a shit who you are i'm gonna get you to where you need to go because that's my job but you are you are not god to me and yeah he he delivers in that respect it 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 really yeah and like it's nice to have somebody that's not like on that level of like you're you know you're the pathfinder you're we're you know this icon of the initiative just the guy who's like I, like his first line is something along along the lines of like you're summoning it, huh? Coming to see how the riffraff is yeah, turning out, and yeah. then and you can be you know the more sort of like stoic, aggressive person, or you can be like me, who's just like, hey, it's a dirty job, but somebody's gonna like you know riffing off the same stuff that he does, like not letting him like not letting his sort of like view of you get get to you, but like you know just having like this really fun equal levels relationship that is not found in a lot of other people here. Who beats you with like you know with a handshake and they're like I am this person this is what I do here da, da, da. where you got this guy that's just very like you know Liam's very pro but it's like very still he reveres you in a way where Gil is just like ah dude what's up well and it's it's also different like I like that you brought that up because I think there's a difference in the way that Mass Effect is traditionally treated uh, like ship companions versus squadmate companions like ship companions are always very much like that like joker was kind of the one-off who was not totally like oh yes yes shepherd okay shepherd like mm-hmm. everyone else like even chalk lost to some extent was kind of like was very respectful of your position and stuff like that uh whereas like gill here he's just immediately like not having any of your shit he's he doesn't want some someone coming in and boss him around tell him how to do what he knows he knows how to do like yeah. yeah, he's he's a good character. I like him a lot. I'm interested to see where his storyline goes. I'm interested to see yeah. how your storyline goes with him because it sounds like uh, there's already some uh, romance in the air in your playthrough. Yeah. So, I will say, like, his story goes in places and to places that are, like, I have very complex feelings on, mm-hmm. which, I mean, like, as much as we're having fun talking about him now, like, there's some there's some shit to talk about with him and like the not necessarily him but like the handling of his story mm-hmm. which you know we'll we'll get to eventually but i got to say i love the flirting dialogue of a lot of this yes. game and yeah. like specifically like it's okay so the the original mass effect trilogy like there was like a sense of like poise to a lot of the flirting and that usually you know like in some cases like Liara and Caden like we experienced was pretty good but then there will be some cases where it's, like, grown-worthy, like... Because, like, there are things like Chambers and, uh... Diane Allers and, like, characters that, like, it was, like... Gross. It was just gross. That was, that's the word. It was gross. Whereas, like, the stuff with Gil, like... It feels like actual, like, flirtatious conversations that I've had. 
Because, like, it it starts off where um, Gil talks about, like, how he was happy to see Ryder show up after. Because, like, it felt like the initiative had failed and, like, he, like, regretted coming. And so he says, and, like, can't, can't tell you how jazzed I was when he showed up. And then Ryder goes, I think you're going to find out that me showing up is only one of my many talents. And then Gil says, oh, well, I'll be sure not to blink. I want to see all of them. And I was like, that is, like, a conversation that I have had on, like, Tinder or something. <laughs> like, it, and they're, like, ones later, like, especially... Like the second one, which we'll talk about in like the next couple episodes, but it just it feels like so naturally playful, yes, and yeah. like genuine, like and it's like it's not like porn writing like some things were in Mass Effect Two, Garrus, <laughs> and like I just I love watching it that way. Like it makes a lot of these relationships feel just, and it, like a lot of this comes from like the setting of being sort of like less dire. Like it's just like we don't have to be caught up in the drama of it all and we can just like enjoy like being playful with one another and like just having like these relationships that don't feel like they're weighed down by this gravitas you know yeah 100 percent. like i mentioned it earlier with vetra and like later on we'll talk about it with pb but like the the dialogues flow very naturally and they just sound like things that normal people would say like that's maybe the one thing i yeah. really like about writer compared to shepherd is a lot of the writing no. feels like a more normal person. Like, Shepard, right. kind of by nature, ended up playing this kind of straight man to all the other weird stuff that was going on, and they were very much always like, right. uh, you're doing what now? And stuff like that. Whereas Ryder feels like they can more naturally kind of slide into the nonsense of whatever's happening, and that means that they're right. able, you know, they flirt a little bit more naturally, they argue a little bit better, they have more heartfelt mm. emotions, they get angrier better. Like, it's just feels like a more well-rounded character even though like Shepard has a special spot in our hearts like Ryder is definitely a different take and it's one that is appreciated uh so let's talk about Korra (laughs) um okay oh boy so this whole like you want to talk about like getting off to the wrong foot with your boss uh this whole entire intro for Korra is about how angry she is that you got the job and she didn't and yeah. okay you know granted you know like, okay you got some like residual feelings you know like suck it up you know, tell it to a wine bottle I don't care like it's <laughs> um and it then kind of pivots off into what becomes her main story beat, which is I'm a super powerful biotic and I'm so powerful that I got to train with the sorry commandos. And she has a weird thing where she like, I'm just, I'm just going to say this much. She like refers to herself as a huntress and like, but I want to say like, she even says I'm in a sorry huntress. And I was like, no, you're not. That's one of those things is demonstrably false. And so, <laughs> it's like, uh, it's it's got some skeevy undertones to it, but also like in general, <laughs> this becomes her whole beat, and so uh I'll say like upfront, there is like an interesting side to this that doesn't it is not portrayed enough in the course of the game, where like she's dealing with like that she doesn't feel like she fits anywhere Mm -hmm. and what she means by that is like she you know back in the milky way human biotics were not necessarily revered people 
So, and, like, when she is as powerful as she is, it becomes, there's, like, an added step of, like, fear to it, which is why she ended up going to uh, be an authority huntress and be ingrained in that culture. But, like, I can't stand the way she talks about Asari. Like, it's like listening to somebody in, like, a nature documentary describe how animals work. I, yep. like, there's, like, it's not even, like, like, yes, there's appropriation to it, which is, like, it's, its own problem, but, like, just the way that she talks about Asari, especially, like, considering, like, Lexi and eventually PB are gonna be here, actual Asari, you can be the authorities on these things. And, like, they put this human who, like, into the role of, like, uh, what's it gonna be? Like, you know, like, in Mass Effect 2, like, all our conversations with Thane, like, along with, like, his personal story, but, like, he brought on, like, the describing of, like, uh, drill history mm-hmm. and biology yeah. and everything. Like, they give that role to a human. And she, it's like she doesn't even have her own, like, personality and views to, like, actually, like, fall back on and, like, to be, like, this lifestyle that she, you can actually talk to her about. It's, it's like, if there's, like, a level of disrespect to, like, her being, or at least, like, talking, like, with the authority of, like, somebody who was supposed to be a voice of these people. Yeah. And... And, like, she... And not to, you know, jump ahead too much, but, like, her loyalty mission is ingrained in that shit. Like, it is about the Asari. It's not even about her, really. Like, it falls... Like, there are some maybe some underlying stuff, like, with Alec and, like, her relationship to, like, her mentors that gets brought up. But it is very much about, like, a human being the person who bridges the gap between your character and the Asari. And I just... I, I hate it so much and I don't know like there are like occasional moments in like not even occasional there are like a lot of moments in Mass Effect and drama that feel like they needed like a sensitivity console and she is like a face to add to that and I just and it is especially frustrating because like she is the female lead of this game so like she gets a lot of care put into stuff later like Everyone in this game has their own, like, rom- romance scenes, like, you know, that are different from everybody else, but, like, they put the most care into hers. Like, and I don't understand, beyond the fact that she is the human female in which that you can pursue, that they did that, especially, like, to a character that is, like, doesn't have, like, an actual, like, personality of her own, and, like, her entire backstory is about other people, and it's just, it's like a Jacob situation in that, like, it doesn't feel like she has her own story, but... Like, I mean, you know, that is technically not true, but it's, like, her story is so contingent on a culture that's not hers, and I just, I don't know how the draft of her dialogue and her story got through. I just... I think there's a way you do this. I think there's a way you do this story that's good, because the the first thing I thought of was, I'd been recently reading a comic series called The Wicked and the Divine by uh, Kieran Gillen, Mm -hmm. and there's a character like the whole setup of that thing is like the gods uh take over the bodies of like 18 year olds every like 50 years or something and they get to live for like four or five years i I can't remember it's been a while since i I read them but uh they get to live as like gods and then they all perish and then the recurrence happens again those gods get to come back and stuff but like obviously the teenagers kind of like perished along with it anyways it's it's a really interesting series but there's one girl who is i think think she's she's 
American, but she becomes Amaterasu, who is the um, god of the sun, a goddess of the sun, I believe. I'm pulling it up on my phone just so I'm sure. Um, but becomes a, a, a god in, yeah, Japanese goddess of the sun in the universe. Uh, and they mm. do some interesting stuff in there with the idea that she is this girl who is kind of like picking up the culture of another's that is not hers. Uh, mm. And also, the, like, the idea that now that she is both the girl that she once was and the goddess Amaterasu, she is kind of both those things, which are these contradictory natures. And so I think there is room to explore that idea that she is a human, but has essentially been raised or grown as a sari. Mm. And, like, you could have had some interesting conversations there between Korra and some of the other Asari shipmates and stuff. Mm. Maybe that... Ha- I don't know. I'm assuming by your tone that probably doesn't happen, but... Um, it They, they like, barely... It's, it's, it's kind of like the whole colonialism thing, like, in Avenue 7. Like, they barely touch on it, but then they push it away. I, I don't, I like, don't they, want this they, to sound They're like... very un... I would say they're very uncritical of the way that Korra talks about it. Oh, okay. Um, I don't want this to sound like we're already just kind of putting a lid on Korra as far as where we feel about her, because obviously, like, I have not seen all that stuff through. I'd like to see it all through. It feels like an Ashley sort of situation where I'm like, I'm seeing it through just to see what they do with it. (laughs) And Mm. maybe seeing if they subvert my expectations a little bit. But her her initial appearance and that initial bit of dialogue was definitely not promising. And from what I remember of playing this game before she's very one note in that direction. And I was already not digging the fact that it was like, like you said, it's like this Korra is her center. Her centerpiece is like finding the Asari arc and stuff. And that feels weird when all the other characters who are looking for their arcs have a much stronger connection, but there's like a way to explore that story that feels a little bit more natural or at least like tries to contend with some of the weird friction that creates and i don't get the sense yet that this game is going to do that so it does not um i'm looking forward to next week because i think next week this is already a very long episode i think we'll have a lot to talk about next week too uh next week will be eos just purely eos uh where we're going to kind of journey around a bit and kind of get into really what i feel is like the main part of andromeda which is that open world that exploring that setting things up um as well as getting into some of the larger plot implications i don't Hmm. we didn't really talk about the villain at all here we don't get much of the main villain in this section we just kind of get a little like glimpse of who they are and them kind of looking at a hologram of Ryder using the tower on habitat 7 and all that uh, but we kind of start to get a sense of what the broader narrative is uh, as we get through this part. And so that all is very interesting. I'm really looking forward to talking about that. Really looking forward to getting PB and a few other characters on the squad. Mm. Uh, it's going to be a good all-around time. Like I said, I am interested to keep dissecting all this stuff because I do feel that at least compared to other Mass Effect games, there's more interesting stuff to pick apart because it's not this revered excellent game it is this very mm. messy game that has pitfalls and what those pitfalls say about it as well as where what its triumphs say about it i think ultimately make for a more interesting game to talk about even if it's not considered mm. the better game uh right yeah and i 
I like I agree with on that note, but I also feel like this is my fifth time playing through it, and I do find myself like every like I'm you know I I go away from the game and I'm like I know in my head I like Mass Effect Andromeda, but when I come back to it, it's like I kind of forget. Like, because like when I say I know I like Mass Effect Andromeda, like that's that's got like four different asterisks next to it. Like I know, like yes, I like this game, but like, but also this is my I have a problem with this. I have a problem with this. I have a problem with this. But every time I come back to it, I kind of find that I remember that I like it more than I thought I did. So like, I have a lot of things that I'm interested to talk about, and because you know the game got swept up in, we'll call it like Giftgate, <laughs> we. There was a lot about Mass Effect Andromeda that like went unsaid, so like I'm excited to talk about it on Normandy FM. Hey, I'm excited to talk about it too, right here on Normandy FM. Please keep it tuned. Please keep tuning in. Next week will be EOS. We are very excited. We'll see you then on Normandy FM. But wait, Eric. What? We didn't give our shout out on Patreon. Oh shit. Okay. But wait, we're not done yet, because we do want to give our, our shout-outs to our patrons. Thank you so much for supporting and making Mass Effect Andromeda happen. You are the ones who caused this. You did this to me. I blame you. Uh, Ruben Vanderlund, thank you so much for donating to the amount that we will shout you out. And you can submit questions. Feel free. This is not a one-time offer. If you got any more questions you want to send us about Andromeda, about anything else, you know, within reason bioware rpg related send them on over uh, and if you too want to send questions get your name shout out or anything else you can head over to patreon.com slash and donate to keep us going and hey if you want to keep us going further to more stuff there's always the dragon age games there's always more bioware there's always more video games for us to play that new greedfall looks pretty good i'm not gonna lie i saw that trailer today ken and i was like oh boy that looks like a thing i really want to play <laughs> mm-hmm. uh so maybe who knows maybe greedfall gets added to this if it goes on far enough <laughs> uh but until that point head over there check that out go to twitter.com slash normandy fm show you can head to all the major podcast providers we're on spotify we're on soundcloud we're on other places that i forget but ken has made sure that we're plugged into those places and they're broadcasting and they're working itunes and google play yeah see look at that he's got it all he's got it all handled He's got it taken care of. So for Ken, for me, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week on Normandy FM. Normandy FM. Normandy FM.